everybody. It has, uh, it's been a few weeks, and we'll, uh, we'll get one more of these under our belt before Halloween. We're going to do a Halloween show, uh, as we have always tried to do every year, and, and we got a lot of really great Halloween titles. So we'll have one more of these before Halloween, and then we're, then we're hard into, into the holiday season. Yeah, man. Um, Tim, uh, right off the off the bat, we've we've seen some movies in theaters. You and I, the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah. I, I know you're like literally fresh in. Man, I <laughs> I just bounded out of a two and a half hour screaming, blew down the road, got into the house, piled in here, hooked up the gear, and and and, and got hold of you. So you haven't even heard what I have to say about mine. But you you tell us about what you saw uh, this week. I just saw the new Halloween movie, Halloween Kills. Uh, the middle film of three from David Gordon Green and Danny McBride and all those guys. Halloween, uh, his, his, his pickup of the Halloween series, uh, 2018. This is the middle one. We know that there's going to be a, a third one. Halloween ends. It, it kind of makes it sort of irritating and, and, and sort of, it, you know, it's inherently disappointing because, you know, a middle film is always disappointing. Yeah. The middle film is just disappointing because, you know, you cannot actually get any satisfaction out of the film. They have to save the satisfaction for the third film. Look, um, the, the film is a mess. Let, let me just say that off the top. But it does get a couple of things right. This is one of the things that gets right. That 1978-1981 film, Halloween, Halloween 2, the thing that John Carpenter got right, because he didn't know he was going to be able to make that second film. That's why it took a few years, right? Yeah. Um, but what he did right is he picked that second film up, Halloween 2, literally in, at the same moment that the first film ended. There is no time elapse. That's uh, like the John Wick films. Like the John, and I think that that was fairly novel when Carpenter did it. Back yeah. And uh, I guess it would have been 81 is when he did that. It yeah. was fairly novel. I know that it hit me as novel at the time. And, and me and the wife were like, man, this is really, this is, this movie's like pick it up from right where the other one left off. Okay. This one does the same thing. David Gordon Green picks up literally at the moment that the 2018 film ends, set film, Jamie Lee and her daughters yeah. and all that kind of trying to kill, kill Michael and all this kind of stuff. And then it picks it up from there and runs it out. It, it's, it becomes a mess, very didactic, uh, gets to this whole sort of patter about how we are all the reason why Michael Meyer lives on because of our evil. Fuck that. That's bullshit. Michael, Meyer, <laughs> Michael Myers was a little fucking boy in 68. He killed his sister. They put his ass in the nut house. He broke out in 78. Donald uh, Pleasance, Dr. Loomis, chased his ass all over for the next 40 fucking years. That's what happened. <laughs> That's what happened. You're not going to make me pretend like I did work. I think 12, maybe 11 yeah. other films, a lot of which Jamie Lee Curtis was in, in the intervening years. You're not going to make me pretend like that didn't happen. I hate it when movies want you to pretend like all the crap that they did between these sequels didn't happen. That gets on my nerves. That said, you know, it gets a couple of notes, right? I love that Jamie Lee, hey, look, Jamie Lee is down for, is down for it. And you got about three or four other characters straight out of that first movie, that 1978 movie, Walking around in this movie, 50, 60 years old, however the hell old they are now. <laughs> you know, still walk, including one of those Beverly Hills housewives. I forgot that Broad was in that first movie. Oh, well. Yeah. But, you know, Halloween, what are you going to do? Michael Myers. So there's one more. It's a trilogy then? Is oh, it's a trilogy. Doing- yeah, yeah. Halloween yeah. ends, which, by the way, it won't. they're gonna reboot it because rob zombie rebooted it you know i mean he literally remade the two films yeah uh, oh seven oh nine oh ten whatever whatever they they keep doing it and uh and bloom house of course uh bloom house he has he has the franchise now i think he took it over from dimension if i'm not mistaken still universal yeah Uh, uh but but you know jason has it now 
Um, you know, a little disappointing. I would have thought that he would have found something a little bit more interesting to do with it over there. But, you know, this is what they do. Uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill still involved. So a lot of folks still hanging around, you know, in these last 40 years who've signed off on this thing. And, and you know, there it is. What are you going to do? Well, I just got out of Dune, and uh, I, I'm sure because they premiered it already, you know, at uh, Venice or wherever it was. Uh, the, you know, the the embargoes are off. I will say this: I saw it in the IMAX, the actual IMAX screen over at IMAX headquarters here in Playa Vista, where Denis Villeneuve himself sat and got. You know, I mean, they even told us this ahead of this is where Denis Villeneuve sat. And he sat. And he was in this exact room. You know, they really tried to juice us up with it. Um, it, it, it that's a hell of an IMAX room for starters. Yeah. And I got to say this, even in IMAX, watching Villeneuve's Dune in IMAX, I felt like the movie was wearing that IMAX theater the way that Lou Ferrigno's Hulk would wear those clothes <laughs> on TV. It's just Busting at the seams, man. It, it, it's like it's almost like this movie is too big to even be a movie. Yeah. I mean, he's he's stretching for scale like I haven't seen maybe ever. I mean, it's it's really pushing for just a huge amount of scale. And and I like it a lot. I think it's an incredibly impressive achievement. But what you just said about middle films mm. applies to this one, too, yeah. because this is an intended first part. It even says part one. So there's really no end to it. It doesn't really yeah. go anywhere. It's all set up and no payoff. You can't get satisfaction out of, out of you know, if, if you just can't. And, um, and see, I, I think back to what, and the thing is, the other parts haven't even been greenlit. Warner Brothers wanted to wait and see how this panned out. Yeah. And I think the smart thing about the Lord of the Rings films was, yes, it was a trilogy, and it, it worked as a trilogy, but each of them had a certain level of satisfaction in and of itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Because the books have a certain level of satisfaction in yeah. themselves because yeah. uh, Tolkien knew how to do that. He, you know, how to give you satisfaction here, yet still set you up for another story over there. Um, uh, but these sequels, they're, they're, they're not that clever, uh, some of them. No. You know, but I don't know. Uh, what does it hold on to? Uh, I don't. I mean, you ain't got no, no spoilers or anything. Does but does it hold on to everything in the way David Lynch tried so desperately to you know, hold on to so many things? And it, David never read those books, by the way. <laughs> David, David's film is packing too much in. Yeah, and this. I mean, like you realize by the time you get where, where you are at the end of this is kind of where you are in the Lynch film at about the 50 minute mark or so. I'd mm-hmm. have to I'd have to really time it out. But it's I mean, it borrows a lot of the Lynch aesthetic. It really does. Like they just said, you know what, the suits and the look and the whole thing, we're going to stick with it because that's what people relate to. We're just going to sort of embellish it. We're going to we're going to build on it, you know. So, so they, they really stick with the aesthetic that Lynch established. So it's not replacing it as much as it is sort of building on it, I think. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's, the, there's your conundrum with, with Dune, right? It's, it's, it's such a vast universe that you're, you're running, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You're either packing too much in to try to make it fit, work as one film or you're going to stretch it out and you're going to lose the opportunity to really sort of give people a satisfying, you know, something satisfying to hold on to at each terminal point. Mm. And I, I'm not even sure because, you know, the, the miniseries, which my wife was, was, was part of uh, mm. whatever it was, 2005, yeah. whatever yeah. it was. 
And, uh, you know, Vittorio Storaro shot that thing, which was also, by the way, was my wife could tell you was part of the problem because it was a miniseries and Storaro doesn't shoot no. miniseries timetable. He yeah. shoots feature timetable. And it was like, hey, dude, we, we, you know, we need to knock another page out. No, no, no. Storaro's going to do maybe an eighth of a page a day. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you get. And so, but, but even that felt like, you know, you can't, and, and I'm beginning to wonder if the Dune universe is even, if you can even encapsulate it properly, because I'm watching this thing and I'm thinking, okay, so much of this borrows from Shakespeare and so much of it was borrowed for Star Wars mm. that I, in a way, I feel like it's almost, it, it's time has almost passed. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I just wonder how many other people will. Mm. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting you know? to see. It will be interesting yeah. to see. Yes, indeed. But I will say this. I was not on board with Timothy Chalamet initially. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, you know what? My, 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 my Paul is, uh, is Kyle McLaughlin, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Paul Atreides is Paul, Kyle McLaughlin. I can't see anybody else as Paul Atreides. And I got to tell you, Chalamet does it. He won me over. It's interesting. Really Look, physically, physically, Chalamet is a, is a slight person. Yeah. Um, he's in, 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 he's done two or three films. Uh, he played King somebody in, in, in something. Now. Oh yeah. It was, was it, was it? No, it was, uh, yeah. What? Yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah. Something. And, uh, you know, walking around and all that, uh, that, that chain metal, the armor, things, the yeah. armor and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, he could, he couldn't even stand up in that. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, the actual stuff, I never bought it yeah. for one second that this, you know, this, this, this 80 pound kid. And frankly, again, same thing. Kyle had a, you know, Kyle had a butt, particularly back then. Kyle had a body on him, yeah. you know, and you, and you bought him as a warrior, uh, and, and, and as well as as an intellectual. And Timothy, I just, I'm just not sure I'll ever be able, he's just not, never going to be my action hero guy. He's, just, he's not, you know, but he, but he, but you know what? He, he's intense. He's yeah. intense. I think he, he pulls act. it off. He can act. He can act. He can act. So uh, I want to put a plug in right at the top for this, this terrific book made in California by George Geary, which is all about the California born burger joints, diners, fast food and restaurants that changed America. This is a great book has nothing to do with movies, but the only reason I got it uh, was because it, the, the author signed it for us, which I think was really, really sweet. I can't wait to show this to you in person, dude. It's, yeah. it's, it's just great. But the, the main reason I got it is because I am very, very partial to one chain in particular, which is mostly here in Southern California, but I think they trickle into Arizona. It might even be one or two in Oklahoma. It, originally, Mr. Fatburger, now just Fatburger. Yeah. An amazing place. Great food. Just straight up good burger joint. I always get their Impossible Burgers now. I used to get the Turkey Burgers. But um, an amazing story, too. Founded by Lovey Yancey, uh, one of the great stories of all time. Uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe she was the first successful black woman to be a restaurateur. Yeah, certainly. I uh, think she, I think yeah, she was. That's that's the way that I've you know, and a lot of people have heard of you know some of the first you know like we were talking about Madam C J. But but frankly, Lovey was was not known uh, nationwide in the way that she ought to have been. I had never heard of her until I moved here thirty years ago. Had, had first a, location, yeah. first location, nineteen forty six. Yeah. 1946. And then, uh, you know, she bought out her partner and by 1981 when they were offering franchises and, uh, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, there are now 117 locations all in, in 16 countries. And they include, they, they actually have two locations in Pakistan, if you can believe that. <laughs> They've got one in Dubai and they got one in Beijing too. Now they're mostly here. 
you know. Um, but man, it's uh, it's it's a great story. It's a great story. Lovey Yancey and Fatburger. Um, a lot of other great stories here too. There's like Burl's and Snowbird ice cream is a fabulous story. Mm. Um, there's another one I had here. Uh, McConnell's Fine Ice Creams is another great local business. A lot of people don't know that's Santa Barbara ice cream. It is amazing, especially the uh, the peppermint ice cream is maybe my favorite thing in the world. McConnell's peppermint ice cream, just absolutely to die for. Uh, and then I'm going to make mention of another one here that I think people ought to pay attention to. Hang on just a second here. And uh, they've got oh, man, so many good ones here. Uh, Copper Penny Family Restaurants. You ever heard of Copper Penny Family Restaurants? I don't think I know that one. Unbelievable story. So um, it, 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 it's, it's all started right after World War II. Um, this, this couple, the Afferbaus, uh started this coffee shop called Copper Penny Family Restaurants, and it's an amazing story. It's really an amazing story. Uh, I, you, you just got to look into it. Um, and a lot of these don't really exist anymore. You know, they've kind of morphed into something corporate, but, you know, Laurie's Prime Rib is in here. Uh, that still exists in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's a great, great story. So check this book out. Made in California, the California-born burger joints, diners, fast food, and restaurants that changed America. I am going to, I'm, I'm going to do a road trip one of these days and just hit these places up. Hit them all. Um, Tim, we also lost a couple of filmmakers in uh, the last few weeks. We, we lost Roger Michelle, who, uh, of course, did uh, uh, Notting Hill and, you know, a lot of persuasion and uh, pa- uh, what was the changing lanes? Love, changing lanes, the mother. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but good Notting, Hill, Notting Hill, Notting Hill is the thing, though. That was, yeah. And most folks, when they think of Notting Hill, they think of, we were talking about this a few weeks ago, you think of Notting Hill, you think of Richard Curtis. Yep. Of course, you wrote Notting Hill. Yeah. Uh, and, but, you know, but, you know, Roger Michel directed that, that film and I, his best work, of course, well before he became a, uh, a director of cinema, he was a theater director, one of those royal Shakespeare. And it shows. Yeah, All plays, you know, but he really, he really was a wonderful theater director. Um, um, and, uh, and, and, and sort of in very important in that way. Uh, and then, you know, his filmmaking career is his filmmaking career. But if you didn't do anything but Notting Hill, I don't suppose that would make you the worst director in the world. And the other loss, which is going to dovetail us right into our, uh, it's going to be, it's going to lead us right into our, our first review this week because the timing was almost poetic. Uh, Melvin Van Peebles. The asked. great Melvin Van Peebles, born 1932, 89 years old, father, of course, of Mario Van Peebles. Yeah. Um, uh, my father, I, I, I got a chance to talk about Melvin a little bit on the radio show, Film Week, our regular radio show. And, and I got to tell the story of how my father would so inappropriately take me <laughs> to, to the, uh, you know, the story of a three day pass, uh, sweet, sweet backs bad. I, you know, I'm seven, eight years old. My dad is taking me out to the drive in to see these movies, these Melvin Van Peebles film, films because he was a, such a huge fan. And then, of course, get, get to Los Angeles in the early nineties. And I think the first time I chatted with Melvin was on the red carpet of Mario's film Posse, uh, which Melvin is in. Of course. Sure. Uh, and of course, so Mario adapted Melvin's book uh, for Black Panther. Melvin wrote the book that right. made, made, made him option the book, too, by the way, <laughs> made, made, made Mario option the book, uh, which I think is pretty fantastic. And if you really, you know, and the watermelon man and, and, we'll, and we talked about all that. But if you really want to know. About Melvin, and I and I don't know if this is in that set we're going to be talking about, but what you really want to take a look at is Mario's film, 2003 film, uh, Badass, 
which is um, on the set. It's which is fantastic. It's in the set yeah. in which, in which, in which Mario covers that whole period, uh, which Melvin, during which Melvin was trying to make that film early seventies. They and, do a and, commentary and, together. The commentary, commentary includes both of them. And, Mar- and Mario, and Mario plays Melvin and he's actually playing, you think, oh, well, that's easy. He's just playing his dad. But, but, but Melvin had a very particular dynamic. Yeah. Uh, Mario's a very uh, gregarious guy, funny, uh, very open. Melvin, not so much. <laughs> Melvin was, Melvin was, was very sharp. He came up in a particular time, uh, did not, uh, stand fools, uh, uh, uh lightly. Uh, uh, and, 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 and so he had to actually play this guy that was his father, uh, uh, and, and not do himself in, in that film. And it's really, really great film. And, and I, what can I say about, about Melvin Van Peebles? You know, a bit of a mentor. To, uh, to young black filmmakers for, you know, more than 45, 50 years. You know, Melvin, my exposure to Melvin Van Peebles came um, sort of at a later stage. You know, I was, again, you and I have written about this and talked about it before. I was, a, you know, as a kid, a huge fan of black exploitation films. Loved all that early stuff. You know, uh, all the Pam Greer stuff, uh, Shaft, obviously, Superfly, had no idea he was a drug dealer or a pimp. Uh, didn't care. He just dressed cool. Me you know, those, so, so those, <laughs> those films were all, you know, coffee and, and truck Turner and those, you know, those movies were really, really, uh, very, very seminal for me at that, at that Bruce Lee moment when I was into mm. all that 70s stuff, you know, dirty Harry and, and end of the dragon. It was all kind of part, you know, Starskin Hutch, all kind of part and part. They, they the even same. started to sort of cross over a little bit. They did. The Jim Kelly's and the, you know, all that, you know, yeah, look at, you know, Antonio Fargus, uh, on, uh, on Starskin Hutch kind yeah. of, that's the direct sinew that ties that to, to the black exploitation genre. And it was, it was probably later in the seventies that I discovered Melvin, through his one studio film, Watermelon Man, mm. uh, starring Godfrey Cambridge, the great Godfrey Cambridge, one of the the, the great original uh, stand up comics of of his generation, and um, and I thought, oh, this is a terrific movie, you know, because it's it's such a daring premise mm. that he pulls off comedically, but it was a studio film, and Melvin was never happy with it, and it was after that that I discovered Sweet Sweetback, which was released just the following year, was sort of his that was like his seminal, you know. Um, film, but then it was much later that I, in, it was in the eighties when I was in film school that I saw a story of a three day pass, mm. which is arguably still to my mind, his, his masterpiece. That's my yeah. favorite film of his, his, early, um, his, his earliest film when he was an expat, Pat living in the, in, in, in France wrote, wrote that novel. He wrote it in French. He, he wrote the in, novel French. in French. He, yeah. Melvin taught himself to speak French and Spanish fluently, uh, when he became an expat. I mean, this is this guy, but, but Melvin, Melvin was a trolley car driver in San Francisco. Melvin was a was a street magi- magician. Melvin was a navigator, actually, in, 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 in the United States Army Air Corps at that period when he was an army. And he was one of the first black navigators, uh, which is something that he and I had in common. We were both kind of in the Air Force. Melvin uh, did so a musician, uh, a poet. Uh, uh, Melvin did so many things in his life and he brought it all to bear in his films. But, but by the time Melvin was 39 years old, he'd lived the lives of, you know, uh, 10 guys like me. So he is, he is what we legitimately can call a Renaissance man. And we Mm -hmm. use that term too casually these days, you know, uh, we'll, we'll look at somebody who's say a hyphenate in the business and go, Oh, what a Renaissance man. No. No. Melvin Van Peebles was a Renaissance Renaissance man. In What's the, so interesting in the, that there were a few brothers back then. Him, Gordon Parks, uh, the uh, uh, um, senior, senior. You know, Gordon yeah. Parks, same thing. Uh, uh, a Renaissance man, uh, you know, Sidney Lumet. There were a few of those guys back then, and you, they really don't exist anymore. 
Now you you just opened the door to a question I, ha- I had for you, and I wanted I, this is something I really find super fascinating because um, Gordon Parks took a while to get his film career going. Mm. Gordon Parks is from the previous generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Melvin Van Peebles is actually the same generation as Gordon Parks Jr., mm-hmm. who, who died, uh, sadly, prematurely. Um, but, you know, I think Melvin is maybe a year or two older than Gordon Parks Jr. So, you know, but yet you get you get Shaft and Sweet Sweet back um, kind of right in sequence with each other. And they're both based on novels. Mm-hmm. Um, very different. You know, one is based on the guy's own novel, and you even get you know Gordon Parks. What was his previous film? Was it The Learning Tree. The Learning Tree. Learning, yeah. Learning Tree was based on his on his personal novel. So that's you know they're all kind of in the same moment. But it's very interesting. In your opinion, I'm really curious to find out which who is the more sim. If you had to say one of them is a more seminal figure for black filmmakers at that point who are suddenly made aware of the fact, hey, I, I can actually tell my stories. I don't have to work for the man. I don't have to make, you know, whatever is being handed to me. I can go out and I can use this new medium as my tool and my voice to tell my stories. Is Gordon Parks and The Learning Tree more seminal or is Story of a Three-Day Pass more seminal? Because those films are like a year apart. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to say it, was, it would be Melvin's films. Uh, for one thing, Melvin's films are a bit more transgressive uh, than Gordon Park Sr.'s, than Gordon Park's films. Uh, they're pushing back uh, against the system a little bit harder. Gordon Parks, uh, he, would, he would disagree with us that Shaft was a black exploitation film. Yeah, uh, he did not feel that that was a, you know we've sort of lumped it into that category, but he didn't think so. Well, it's it, it is a studio film. It's more yeah. like across 110th Street. Yeah. It's kind of it sort of rubs elbows with the genre, but the, I, I would say it's probably true. It's not of the genre. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to Superfly, his son's film, which is yes. unequivocally a black exploitation film. Yeah, uh, and and if you think about it, Shaft was a guy who was though not necessarily in the system, was working with the system. He worked with those cops and, 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 he, and he, you know, he wasn't a gangster. He was, so, so, so Melvin's films were slight, obviously sweet, sweet back, slightly more transgressive in that way. Even for that matter, story of a three day pass, which is about a black guy who gets in trouble, black guy in the army serving in the military uh, in Europe and gets in trouble because he starts dating uh, a, a young white woman. So in that way, um, I think Melvin, you can find a more direct thread from Melvin to say the filmmakers of the LA rebellion. Yeah. Um, you can find a more direct thread there uh, in, 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 in a foundational sort of way, whereas uh, Senior was a little bit more inside the system telling his story. Yes, he wrote that book, but but their films, his films are not necessarily uh, pushing this, uh, telling the system. Sweet, sweet back is a straight up slap in the face. And then Melvin takes it, takes it to Detroit, four walls it uh, uh, himself. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and all around the country. So in that way, I think you might say Melvin was the guy that John Singleton and Spike Lee. And, um, I, was, I almost said Charles Burnett, but that wouldn't be true. Uh, it, it, you know, sort of like connected themselves to from that from that period. Well, it is uh, Melvin Van Peebles passed literally the week before Criterion released this box set, and his his uh, death announcement came jointly from his family and the Criterion collection. And I can't imagine that that has ever happened before. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, that tells you there that's that's quite an honor, and he he timed his his death perfectly to promote his own movies. This <laughs> uh, is the exact kind of thing Melvin would do. Kind of thing he'd be proud. of. He's looking down right now and saying, "I I, I planned it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's what gotcha. I wanted to do." But 
but it is it's an amazing box set and this was announced quite a while back and so we've all been looking forward to it it includes um of his canon the story of a three-day pass watermelon man sweet sweet backs badass song and don't play us cheap which we didn't really uh talk a whole lot about from 1972 which is kind of a kind of a broadway you know sort of a, a, a riff on on broadway musicals um, and it includes just a ton of stuff, including the aforementioned uh, Badass from 2003, Mario's film. Uh, conversations between Mario Van Peebles and uh, Elvis Mitchell, which are really, really interesting. Includes also Warrington Hudlin and Nelson George and Gerald uh, Butters. And, you know, it's a really, really interesting conversations there. Um, Melvin Van Peebles' commentary on Sweet Sweet Back is fantastic. There's a documentary about his life and career from 2005, How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It. Uh, an interview from uh, 1971 uh, from the, uh, the Detroit Tube Works. French television interview from 1968, which is absolutely amazing, which is all about uh, kind of gives you a lot of set visit stuff from uh, Story of a Three Day Pass, which is amazing. I've never seen that before. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, just a ton of other stuff. I mean, it's just endless. And, anything, from, uh, anything from classified X, uh, that, that doc, I think it was a French doc, it, it, the it, middle it, 90s. That is what is missing. And, uh, it, 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 you know, it's too bad. It's, that's a really tremendous doc. And uh, I just suspect that they couldn't get the rights to it. Yeah, different, well, different, not a, not a, not a, he, he narrates that, that, that yeah. Thing. Uh, but you know, any, any it's, it would have been it would have been really great to have it in here. But it, as it is, this is an amazing box set from a really, really significant figure. Not just a great filmmaker, but a, a kind of an amazing figure in French and American culture in the 20th century. Mm. His con- contributions to American culture, to French culture, um, are are extraordinary, and there just aren't that many expats who who you know had a had a foot in one country and another. And could be legitimately said to, to have to have played a role in in the uh, the artistic evolution of the two countries. But Melvin Van Peebles did, and uh, what an important character! What a what a, a mighty figure and a, a, just a really really seminal figure for film. Mm. So there is that from Criterion. Uh, let's let's hit out these other Criterions too. We got as long as we're on the Criterion thing. Visconti's The Damned is also out on Blu-ray. That is from uh, 1969. Uh, not my favorite Visconti film, but it's certainly, you know, in the, in the canon, great, great performance by, uh, Dirk Bogard is kind of what, what anchors it. Uh, some people love this more than others. There's some good stuff here, including a, uh, 1969 behind the scenes documentary Visconti on set, which I almost think is cooler than the movie. And there's a 1970 interview with Visconti, uh, talking about the film. So the damned, one of his, you know, uh, more controversial films. Uh, from the Japanese New Wave era, 1964's Onibaba by Ooh. Kaneto Shindo. Not one of the more well-known names of the, of that period, but it's a, it is, you know, it's a pretty great medieval, uh, Japanese kind of, uh. Some people call it a drama. Others call it a horror film. It's, it's a folk tale. It's, it's a folk, folk tale. tale. Yeah. Those are folk lore. It's sort of, yeah. Sort of things yeah. Yeah. Japanese folklore. Um, on the on the Hollywood end, we have uh, Raoul Walsh's High Sierra with Humphrey Bogart and Ida Lupino. Uh, you know, standard, straightforward stuff. Got a few extras on here. Ni- 2019 documentary on uh, Marilyn Ann Moss, or by sorry, by Marilyn Ann Moss about Raoul Walsh, the true adventures of Raoul Walsh. Um, 
Also have uh, Colorado Territory, which is his 1949 Western remake of High Sierra. Not as good by any means, but, uh, you know, why he went and did that is sort of an interesting story. And then there's a new interview with uh, Miriam J. Petty about actor Willie Best, which is which is a nice little reflection on somebody who's disappeared a little bit. Uh, Johnny Toe film called Throwdown from mm. 2004, which I had not seen, believe it or not. I'm a big Johnny Toe fan, especially his earlier stuff. And uh, this is one that I had missed. So I'm glad that this got this totally unexpected uh, criterion treatment here. Um, it's a, it's actually not a gangster film, believe it or not. Yeah. It's, um, it's kind of a, an artistic tribute to his, his own personal inspirations. And it takes place, it is, you know, it's an underworld film. It takes place in kind of the, 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 the dark neon-y, um, underbelly of Hong Kong. Um, but it's about a, a, about a judo champion who's a has been, and he's now, um, just a bar owner. And Aaron Kwok plays this guy who wants to challenge him. And, you know, it's, a, it's got a, it's got kind of a noir feel to it. Um, but it's very, very personal and it's very poetic and it's an unusual, uh, toe film by, by any measure. I also got Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa with Bob Hoskins and, and oh. Kathy Tyson. Terrific. Michael Caine kind of takes a little bit of a backseat here, but, uh, Mona Lisa is just a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, great transfer here. This has come out a few times. New conversation with uh, Jordan and uh, Kathy Tyson, um, moderated by critic Ryan Gilby. That's definitely worth uh, checking out as well. And then, lastly, want to spend a second on Love and Basketball oh, yeah. by my UCLA classmate Gina Prince Bythewood. She was Gina Prince at the time. Then she married Reggie Bythewood, the screenwriter of Get on the Bus. Um, but Love and Basketball was uh, sort of her coming out as a filmmaker from 2000. And I got to say, when I was in school, there were two grad students that were sort of the stars of the department. Alexander Payne was one and Gina was the other. And everybody knew that those two were going places because they just had a complete, they were just confident. They did great work. They made great movies. They just knew their stuff. And uh, Alexander Payne had a, had a great go of it. And Gina, uh, I think, fell into, uh, you know, she's had a good career, yeah, yeah. but she's had some struggles. Yeah. As I think women and especially black women have when they want to be filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She had to deal with both of those things at one at one time, and you know, and, and again, managed to have a career anyway. Secret Life of Bees and some television and, and, and whatnot. But man, she always just had a great eye. She had a particularly great eye for actors. Uh, this movie here, Sonata Latham and Omar Epps, of course. But yeah. people forget that Harry Lennox is in this film, Dennis Haysbert is in this film, a young Regina Hall is in this film, a young Gabrielle Union is in this film. Uh, so she had an eye for talent uh, and, and, and put them to work, and they did really, really excellent work and built careers themselves. In some cases, careers even bigger than hers, which is, you know, again, ironic. Good point. Well, it, it, this is just an absolutely wonderful film. I'm so thrilled it's it's out again, and that it's getting the Criterion treatment. It, they, there's there's making of material on here. There are new interviews, um, uh, you know, lots of lots of just wonderful stuff here. New new conversations with uh, uh, with Gina and uh, Cheryl Swoops and uh, and Lena Waithe. I mean, it's really really good stuff. And you, you just get a wonderful sense of the creative process of the film, how it came together, everyone involved. It's just a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, 
And, uh, and Gina is finally, you know, she directed that thing for Netflix, that superhero thing that I, the, oh, that was uh, not. Yeah. Yeah. I forget what it was. Yeah. But the... Yeah. Which, which, which I, it was kind of a for hire gig. She, she opted out of the, the sequel. Um, I get it. It was a career move, but it's, it's turning out for her. So it looks like her next film is a period film, uh, about the last days of one of these, uh, sort of the true life story about the, the last days of one of these epic Amazon tribes in Africa in the 19th century. Oh, wow. Uh, which, which, uh, just got announced. They're casting it now. Looks like it should be a great thing. And I'm kind of thrilled that she's gone into Oscar territory because it's where she always should have been. Yeah. You know, making Oscar level films, really personal films. So I am that, that makes, I kind of feel a little bit of justice has come around. Gina's, you know, come around full circle. She's getting the, the, a bigger shot at a bigger film. The Netflix thing panned out, which I'm glad. So in the meantime, if you want to catch up on your Gina Prince Bythewood and, uh, and see what an amazing filmmaker this young woman is, and I'm proud to say she's still a young woman uh, because it allows <laughs> yeah. me to say I'm a young man. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> love, and basket, love and Basketball, man, it's an absolutely terrific film. Uh, let's see, Tim, where do we turn? Oh, one other one here. This is not Criterion. This is from Arrow, but Arrow has released Ridley Scott's Legend in a fantastic set that includes the theatrical cut and the, um, director's cut. Legend is, uh, is famous because this is the first film that, um, that Universal tried to sort of wreck at the time. Uh, you know, they, they, it, it, it was sort of concurrent with, um, with uh, Brazil, yeah, and um, Terry Gilliam was uh, was fighting Sid Sheinberg over Brazil. Sid Sheinberg went on to form the Bubble Factory with his kids, but he was running Universal at the time. Sheinberg had no taste whatsoever, and he had uh, he did a cut of Brazil that was absolutely horrendous. And 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 Terry Gilliam loves to sort of include that on every every set now to show people <laughs> how terrible the version is that, that Sheinberg came up with. Anyway. Uh, Legend was not so fortunate. It showed its original director's cut at the Cannes Film Festival and then released this horrible Scheinberg overseen theatrical cut in the U.S. with the original Jerry Goldsmith score stripped away and Tangerine Dream stuck in there. And it's just, it's, it's like, you know, 40 minutes shorter and it's, it's, it's a horrible movie. But the, the director's cut is great. So, um, Finally, we get an absolutely terrific release with both of them on it. Make your own mind up. A lot of really good extras on here. Arrow has done a great job. Uh, I wish that it was 4K and not just Blu-ray, but that's okay. I'll live with it. Great transfer, including a great audio commentary by Ridley Scott and an archival documentary from 2002 called uh, Creating Myth, Memories of Legend. So uh, storyboards and a lot of other stuff on here. So both yeah. cuts of legend. Yeah. Young Tom Cruise, Tim Carey, Mia Sarah. Uh, uh, Ridley, of course, has a movie out today. That, uh, what is that? Uh, Last Duel. Uh, oh, yeah. Have you uh, seen it? Uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Peter talked about it today on the radio. I won't ruin anything for him. Ben Affleck, ben, uh, uh, Adam Driver, uh, Matt Damon, Ben, Ben and Matt back together under, under Ridley Scott in a, what, 12th century? Is that in the 12th century? 13th century. Something like that. Something I, like that. I, I, you know, I want to see it. I feel like I need to see it, but man, it scares me. I yeah. just, I can't get, I can't wrap myself around those mullets that Matt and Ben are wearing. Well, and Ben is doing that bleach blonde thing for some reason, and I'm not really sure what the hell that's all about. But nevertheless, well, I'll, I'll wait for the awards season swag yeah. to roll out, and I'll, I'll catch it then. Do cat? You should try to catch Dune at an IMAX screen, though. I'll tell oh, you, yeah. that thing that just that just beats you in the face in a really good way. Uh, should we do some TV? Uh, sure, let's do some TV. 
right. if you want to. I see you got Clarice season one. Clarice, of course, the principal character from um, Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal and uh, the Thomas Harris novels, of course. I remember seeing the Silence of the Lamb. I'm going to say, what is that, 92? Uh, yep. Something like that. And 90, uh, yes, 90, uh, let's see, 92. Yeah, 92. Yeah, and you saw that, and, you know, and I, and I had read the book, and I thought to myself, well, this was just an absolutely <clears throat> outstanding adaptation of that novel. And everyone was really, really great in it. Uh, and there was a big argument about whether or not it was a thriller or a horror film and all the Red Dragon and all, all kinds of things go sort of going on around that movie. And it was really wonderful. Uh, I remember Bridget was in St. Louis when I went to see it. So she didn't get a chance to see it at the screen with us. And the moment she got off the plane, I took her to see Silence of the Lambs. It was that good uh, of a film. You know, all, all of the films since, and, and, and I don't know about the series. I haven't seen it. Uh, nothing has stood up to 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 that film. Ted Levine's performance, Jodie Foster's performance, Scott Glenn's performance, and of course the great uh, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. Uh, it, it, to my mind, that could have stood alone. I really didn't need any of the rest of it. I'm not sure about the series. What do you think? You know, I, I I've tried to sort of uh, give this series a chance. It's not great. It maybe in future seasons they can pull it together. Uh, but here's the thing. It is becoming too much of a trope on television. Hey, let's just do an origin story. You know, the origin story of all the Batman villains. We'll do Gotham. Yeah. The origin story of, uh, of you know, we already had Hannibal, right? We already yeah. had Hannibal's origin story, you know, in, in Hannibal. Okay, and then we did the origin story for, for, uh, uh, for you know, for Psycho, where, right? We had um, Bates oh, yeah, Motel, yeah, Norman yeah, and his mom, right? Yeah. Uh, so, we, you know, they keep doing this. They keep finding these movie characters and then saying, okay, we'll do an, a series about their origin story. I don't know if there's enough to Clarice to justify. This feels like, you know, a new criminal minds, like just with a woman and uh, they're going to name her Clarice. I mean, yeah, technically it ties in, but that's kind of what it's doing. I don't know. And, and the thing of it is, it, and, and, and the, you know, this is television and movies, but the novel, Thomas Harris novel, is an origin story for Clarice. We meet Good and point. learn about Clarice when she's a young, young girl. The reason why they call it the Silence of the Lambs has to do with something that she experienced when she was a young, young girl. It's that speech that Anthony Hopkins has with her when he's on the other side of that plexiglass. Yeah, makes her tell her. So, you know, I don't know. Um, she, she's, she's, she's a girl from down South who really wasn't good enough and, uh, and made herself good enough to be the best at what she does. That's the origin story. We're done. Yeah. So, um, black lightning fourth and final season. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) We have the same problems with this show. Uh, I, you know, um, watch our Godcast. You kind of will. We 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 touch a yeah. tad on on why this isn't. Look, I mean, Black Lightning could have, should have been probably better. They tied him in a little bit with the rest of the Arrowverse for that yeah. uh, the the, infinite, the, infinite universe. Infinite, yeah, I mean, here's here's what I like about this show. Uh, the, the the actress who plays his younger daughter, uh, Jennifer China Ann McLean. China Ann McLean is the actress who plays his younger daughter. I am a huge fan. China Ann McLean is going to be a huge star. She's amazing. I didn't really even discover her on this. I discovered her in those Infernal Descendants movies on yeah. Disney Plus because my daughter can't stop watching them. And on those, she plays Uma, the daughter of Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid. 
So, you know, Uma is a big part of those movies starting in the second one, second and third one, uh, Descendants 2 and 3. And China Ann McLean, who was a lot younger then, is just phenomenal. Phenomenal. She's she's one of the few things that makes those movies bearable. And she plays the younger daughter here, and she's she's equally great. So I am looking forward to China Ann McLean in bigger and better stuff. She's one of the things that makes Black Lightning tolerable for me. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be Black Lightning up all by itself. The Arrow, the, look, um, um, uh, all those CW shows, uh, uh, Arrow, uh, Flash, I think we got an Arrow here that we're going to talk about. Uh, they're all wearing a little thin. I, you know, I love me some Flash. Give me some Barry yeah. and Iris any day yeah. of the week. I love me some Flash, but wearing thin, wearing thin. Oh, well, let's go to that now that we, <laughs> now that you jumped on that. We have the Flash, which you and I have loved a lot. Flash, uh, complete seventh season. Um, man, I'll tell you, look, I, I've i had two slogs in the rec- in recent weeks. One of them was the current Foundation, Isaac Asimov Foundation show on oh, Apple Plus, else, yeah. mm-hmm. which I've watched all 10 episodes of because I got preview links to them. So uh, the, the rest is yet to come. I can't break the embargo and tell you anything about the few. I will just say this about the show. Man, that was a slog. Mm. That was really, I, I, I had to drag myself hard through that. And the 18, 19, 20 some odd episodes of season seven of The Flash, much as I have loved this show, I've got to tell you, from about the middle of season six, when they tie up that whole Infinite Earths thing, mm. the second half of season six, that whole Mirrorverse story, yeah, whatever, kind of wraps up here at the beginning of season seven. You know, it, it felt like it was on fumes. And then the rest of season seven, I'm like, I don't even know what the story is. Like, he's breakdancing now and they're doing karaoke. Like, it's it's almost like everyone in this show, you know, Cisco has left the show because mm-hmm. he's like, he, he's tapped out. He's like, I, I've, I've taken this character as far as I can take it. Uh, you know, they replace him with a guy who's fun. Yeah. yeah. But, but. It just feels like this show is uh, everybody's done. They're yeah. kind of ready to move on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's yeah. lost. Hey, look, um, Grant should have been cast um, as uh, yeah, who, who plays him in the uh, in the movies. Uh, oh yeah, uh, the, uh, yeah, Ira something or other. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I I was a little pissy about that, but now I can see how Grant might have been like, you know what? I got to get the hell out of these red leotards. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I got I got I got to be I got to be a guy who walks around in a suit. And uh, and, and he is and he is a really really good actor and really likable and he's in his prime now mm-hmm. and he's got uh, almost a decade behind him in the red suit. It's kind of time for Grant to move on and be able to show that he can do other things. Yep. And maybe features, maybe another TV show. But as an actor, I think he he doesn't want to waste his prime years and wind up in like Mark Harmon, you know, who's yeah. now pushing yeah. seventy and looking back and like. Have I really been doing this show for this long? Yeah, bro. You, Sixteen you, years. You, you, you were you were a brunette when you started. Man, <laughs> so crazy. There, there it is. There we've is. got uh, we've we've got some uh, Ultraman to mention too. So in the standard uh, Steelbook releases of the the Ultraman series, which is an ongoing thing from Mill Creek, we now have the seventh one, which is Ultraman Leo. This is the original Ultraman Leo show. You know what? Pretty much just like all the others, there's a whole lore to this thing that is just far, far beyond me. But, uh, you know, this is this is the seventh of the ongoing Ultraman series, the original Ultraman series. And if you're a completist, you're absolutely going to love it. If yeah. you're if you're not, you're going to watch this and you're going to go, what the hell am I looking at? Fifty one episodes of this thing. Fifty one and a half hour episodes. It's crazy. 
And then we also have uh, the Ultraman uh, Ultraman Galaxy box set, which is a couple of movies and the original series. This is newer Ultraman, uh, just as ridiculous as the original, but still kind of just as fun. Yeah. And uh, it's not bad. 26 episodes plus a movie event. And then the other one is Gridman, the hyper agent, yeah. which is kind of belongs to the Ultraman Lord. But it's a, it's a sideways thing. The hyper agent Gridman. You know, it's more or less the same kind of deal. All these are from uh, from uh, Mill Creek. Um, Dude, what's in that? What's in that? Uh, because it's under television. What's in that ultimate Richard Pryor collection? I was just going to say, Tim, is this like a really black show today? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're so there. This is it, it is, man. This is this is amazing. This is the Richard Pryor, un, the ultimate Richard Pryor uncensored collection. Uh, two volumes plus I Am Richard Pryor, mm. the, uh, the, the documentary. And this is, this is great. This is from Time Life. And they went and did a deal with Virgil Films. Virgil has the rights to I Am Richard Pryor. So it's all, all in. This is, this is just everything, man. Um, this is, this is just tons and tons and tons of, of Richard Pryor stand up, of television appearances. Um, it, it's, it's pretty much every, every second of Richard Pryor that he's ever been on television all packed into a box set. So Richard Pryor is Richard Pryor, not the movies, some kind of hero and then Jojo Dance, but Richard Pryor as Richard Pryor and uh, on TV, say all that kind of stuff. That's what we're looking at here. Yes, it, it's it's uh it's 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 Pryor's it's sort it's sort of like his career what they, and they've done this with Dolly Parton and a few other people too you know uh it, it's a it's it's a it's like a a tribute to his his entire career as you know it's it's twenty six hours on thirteen discs mm-hmm. I mean it is everything it is just a massive amount of stuff. It's um, it, and you do get his his concert films, by the way, you the get live and smoke. Yeah. yeah, you get, you know, you get live in the Sunset Strip and here and now you get those. But you also get, you know, his television special from 1977. You get Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, which yeah. which was his, you know, his his one movie, his 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 life. Uh, you know, he wrote it and he directed, it, he produced it. Um, you get, uh, his, you get a bunch of like comedy store performances, including his final, his, the, the final tribute event to him at the comedy store. Um, there are documentaries on here. Uh, in addition to I Am Richard Pryor as a standalone disc, you also get Richard Pryor Omit the Logic. Mm. Uh, you get deleted scenes from, you know, movies. You get outtakes from movies. You get like a booklet with all kinds of personal family photos and stuff from his family. I mean, it's, it's just, there's no end to it. And you get every TV appearance he ever made on every talk show, whether it was Dick Cavett or The Tonight Show or you name it, all the TV appearances, they're all on here. It's just the complete Richard Pryor. It's the whole deal. It's Dang. the whole massive, thing that he you know his it's his life it really is it's the ultimate richard Pryor collection uncensored that's what it is right right it's amazing and we also have the nevers season one part one i i hate it when they do that i hate the part one part two like just give us the whole season yes yeah. I, I don't know why they're still doing that Anyway, this is uh, an uh, HBO original. Uh, Tim, have you seen any of the Nevers? Uh, one or two uh, of them. I don't know. What do you think? I, uh, you know, I I love Victorian England as a as a background. Uh, I I think uh, when they get all steampunky with it and and drop sci-fi on top of it, now you're now you're inviting all kinds of sort of Doctor Who comparisons. Even <laughs> the Doctor Who is not Victorian, but you know what I'm saying. Once you get British and sci-fi. 
everybody starts thinking Doctor Who, and I don't think it it, it compares all that favorably, to be honest. Yeah. Um. Anyway, the idea here is is that you know this is basically like women with superpowers in Victorian England, uh, crime solving women with power, Laura Donnelly and Skelly. I mean, it's 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 nicely done generally, I guess. Um. And this is a this is a uh, uh, a uh, what's his name the the idiot who whose name we're trying to all block from our minds. Uh, <laughs> you know, Buffy, what's his name? Uh, 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 yeah, Buffy the Vampire Slayer guy. Yeah, him. Yeah, Justice Joss, League. Joss, uh, Joss. Joss Whedon. See, yeah. see, it's like he just, he turned into a jerk and we just like, we canceled him in our minds. I can't. Don't need you, brother. <laughs> Don't need you. Anyway, this is a Joss Whedon thing. So apparently he's still got some juice. Uh, anyway, The Nevers, season one, part one. Watch it if you feel so inclined. Was, I can't. That, that was 2020, 2019, 2020? This is 2020. This is 2020. 2020 series? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's nutty. Anyway, we'll be getting part two soon. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna burn through a bunch of Kino stuff here. We got some amazing Kino stuff that I've now that I've had, had some space from film, we could finally just bear down on. And Kino's been doing a great job of, uh, oh, and by the way, end of the show, end of the show, we're going to have an interview. Uh, got a great interview with Grady Hendrix and Chris Pajali, who oh, wrote yeah. this awesome new book, These Fists Break Bricks, How Kung Fu Movies Swept America and Changed the World. It's great. These Fists Break Bricks. It's an amazing book. These guys are awesome, totally awesome. As people know, I've contributed to books and written books on on Kung Fu movies and so forth. Tim and I, we've we've done a commentary for uh for the this uh, awesome Ryan guillotine and uh, yeah, all this all this a lot of great stuff you know the jimmy wang you movie uh uh knight errant you know fun stuff so um we know this territory pretty well and these guys were great uh had a great time tim was uh tim was supposed to be in the interview but you had you had dental work done so we spared you the uh oh, the interview yeah how are you recovering on that by the you way? know what fair to admit it's been two weeks now but i gotta tell you dental surgery is a lot different than just having a tooth pull um, yeah it's um when they get when they gotta get down in there and dig that sucker out and i had three that went back to the tooth fairy so you know anyway i'll, I'll be okay vicodin's a hell of a drug by the way That's <laughs> <laughs> i've heard i want to go ahead and say that so, first off, Kino has just released a giant pile of Mae West movies on Blu-ray. This is the mother load if you were a fan of Mae West. This is it, baby. Um, they're wonderful. I'll just I'll, I'll name them all. Every Day is a Holiday, Klondike Annie, I'm No Angel, total classic there. Go West, Young Man, She Done Him Wrong with Cary Grant. That's that is just that's a real early 1933. It's tremendous. Um, going to Town. Bell of the 90s is another fantastic one that's got Duke Ellington and his orchestra in it. It's just absolutely terrific. And then um, the W.C. Fields classic, My Little Chickadee, Mae West and W.C. Fields doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. And lastly, Night After Night with George Raft and Constance Cummings. Um, Mae West, you know, is is to varying degrees significant in all these films, but if you're a Mae West fan, you got to get them all. You yeah. just got to get them all because she was, I mean, she was like the original great comedian. She owned the 1930s, didn't really quite transition beyond that. Um, 1940 is the latest of all these. That's my little chickadee. That's when they put her together with uh, W.C. Fields. Yeah. But I mean, you know, she was, she was it. She was like the, you know, in the 1930s, there were the Marx Brothers and then Mae West. That was it. And she was, she just owned that period. Absolutely. She had a little renaissance there in the middle 60s when she would hang around with uh, uh, the Three Stooges and, the, yeah. and then, you know, pop up on television. 
uh, every every now and again. When she was well past her prime, but still playing it like she was twenty two. <laughs> uh, she, you know, and, and she was so smart and, you know, so suggestive at a time when that was not okay. Yeah. She really pushed the envelope of the code. But, I mean, there's great stuff here. There are audio commentaries uh, that are just absolutely terrific on all of these. Um, you know, Kat Ellinger does a bunch of them. Um, the, uh, the, on, uh, she done him wrong with Cary Grant. There are actually two commentaries, one by David Del Valle and the other one by Kat Ellinger. And um, they're all great. You know, you get you get just a wonderful, wonderful sense of her career and lots of great insights. Um, I also really, really like the commentary by uh, Alexandra Heller Nicholas and Josh Nelson on Klondike Annie, which is a which is a film I had never really seen before. Um, and, uh, you know, directed by Raul Walsh, 1936. Good, solid programmer, but awfully, awfully fun and a wonderful, wonderful comedy for this one. So a wonderful commentary for this one. Mm-hmm. So um, all these great Mae West movies. Then we've also got. Um, let's see here. Uh, a couple of Basil Dearden movies. Basil Dearden, you know, British British director uh, of, a, of a certain caliber in the 1950s. This is from 1950 and 1956. Is the Blue Lamp from 1950 uh, with Dirk Bogard, and then, which is fine, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's a it's a crime film, and it's kind of a classic Dirk Bogardy crime film. Basil Dearden is sort of, you know, he's on he's along for the ride with uh, with with uh, Dirk Bogard. But here's the one you got to get. You got to get Basil Dearden's Who Done It. From 1956, because this features Benny Hill. Yes. Young Benny Hill. Young Benny Hill. Young Benny Hill. I am such a Benny Hill uh, fanatic. It's unbelievable. I grew up on Benny Hill. Really, this is just so priceless. An Ealing comedy directed by Basil Dearden with Benny Hill. Uh, rank organization. You know, it just it, it, it's absolutely terrific. Benny's taken a bit of a hit uh, in the last, really, over the last decade or so. Benny was a regular fixture on on PBS. Oh, yeah. When I was coming up. But PBS doesn't run that stuff anymore because, you know, um, you know. Well, look, this is this is wonderful. This is a this is it's basically this is not a Benny Hill movie per se. It's a it's a it's a Belinda Lee movie. Yes. Um, But it's, uh, you know, it's a fun kind of a. espionage comedy with you know mistaken identity and all kinds of fun stuff going on it's really good who done it awfully awfully fun um got a bunch of other classics assorted classics here uh that are really really priceless thoroughly modern millie got a lot caught a lot of flack at the time that's from yeah. 1967 julie andrews coming off of uh, um uh sound of music music yeah and and kind of got shot down for this. It was a little overpriced, a little bit eccentric, but I still think it's really fun. Carol Channing and Mary Tyler Moore are terrific. I mean, come on, Mary Tyler Moore and 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 Julie Andrews in the same movie. How often does that happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, directed by George Roy Hill in his prime. Uh, Richard Fleischer directing Crossed Swords, which was a great uh, kind of swashbucklery thing from 1977. Star Wars overshadowed everything at the time, but uh, this was great. It got Oliver Reed. This kind of came on the heels of the uh, of uh, Richard Lester's uh, Three Musketeers and Four Musketeer movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's got Oliver Reed, Raquel Welch, Rex Harrison, Charlton Heston, Ernest Borgnine shows up for some weird godforsaken reason. <laughs> George C. Scott is in this thing. I know, or Ernest Borgnine, period film? What are you kidding me? Uh, Lilies of the Field. Oh, with the uh, I'm telling you, man, this is like the blackest show we've ever done. Sydney, Sydney, is, uh, Sydney. I love we're, that. We're, one we're, of my favorite Sydney Portier movies. That is. It is. This is this is really the one. I mean, this one in the Oscar, right? Yes. 
Yeah, so Lily of the Field won the Oscar, and uh, it's got a whole ton of Academy Award nominations as well. Uh, Ralph Nelson, not not a particularly you know big time director, but man, 1963. This is just such a poetic, beautiful movie. Uh, Poitiers great, you know the nuns are great. It's 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 a it's really a sweet film. It's just got his heart in the right place, mm-hmm. and it pushes all the right buttons. Uh, the producers, the original uh, Oscar winning Mel Brooks, not the musical version, but the one with uh, Zora Mostel and um, Gene Wilder uh, and Gene Wilder. Uh, so, and, and of course, you know, uh, 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 our, our very, very, fa- well, so Kenneth Mars, who plays the Nazi in this, and who was also kind of a Mel Brooks regular, Kenneth Mars also showed up as the inspector with the German accent, kind of the quasi, uh, Dr. Strange lovey guy in, in Young Frankenstein. But do you know what else Kenneth Mars most famously did? Yeah. Kenneth Mars was the voice of um, of uh, the dad in The Little Mermaid. How could that? Really? Fantastic. King Triton. King Triton. That's fantastic. Long I career. Know. Long, long, long career. career. Hey, the, the, even look, the, the play, the musical. Um, it's, it's just funny the way things go. You know, uh, it took some punctures here in the last 15, 20 years about that whole, you know, funny Nazi thing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, it was only 20 years, 15, 20 years post the actual war <laughs> when they actually produced the, the musical and nobody yeah. had a problem with it. Move forward no. 60 years. And now we got a problem with the ridiculous Nazi. Uh, I know. It's really, really funny the way those things sort of frame up. It, it? It's going to, it's going to all come back around again. Yeah. We'll be fine. Yeah. Um, Lust Caution, the Ang Lee film that oh. was uh, released rated uh, NC-17. It is still NC-17 on this Blu-ray. And I think undeservedly so. I yeah. think that was an unfair rating. But this is just an absolutely beautiful film. This was the first time Ang Lee went back and made a, a Chinese language film of any variation of Chinese language since uh, the wedding banquet. Yeah. And uh, it's just pure poetry. This is a gorgeous film. It's, um, it, it's, a, it's a period assassination plot and romance thing. It's, it's kind of noirish and intriguing. But one of the reasons you got to see this is for the Alexander Desplat score, which is just to die for. It's a wonderful film. I love Lust Caution. I think the rating is unfortunate. Got to see it. Uh, the Choir Boys, um, based on the this is Robert Aldrich directing this, one of the all time great directors, based on a novel by Joseph Wambaugh. Was this the first Wambaugh novel adapted, or was that the uh, the the Onion Field? Uh, Choir Boys was in 77. Seems to me like the Onion Field was before that. Yeah, so it would have been the Onion Field. Ted Danson and James Woods and all those guys. So, yeah, I think this would be the second one, yeah. Okay, so this is the second one. Lou Gossett Uh, Jr., man, is just so good. Oh, he's he's phenomenal in this. Lou Lou is phenomenal. Charles Durning's phenomenal. James Woods, again, is really good. Randy Quaid, before he went completely off (laughs) off his rocker. (laughs) Um, No, Choir Boys is a a terrific film. All those those Wombaugh stories are really tough. Uh, Harold Becker's uh, got another Wombaugh film here, The Black Marble. Um, this is from 1980. This is not quite as impressive as the others, but it still has a, it's got a good, real tough, hard-boiled plot. Uh, Robert Foxworth, uh, Paula Prentice, Harry Dean Stanton, good mm-hmm. solid, you know, cast. Uh, Owen Roysman shot the hell out of this thing. Maurice Jarre did the score. The Black Marble, another good uh, Joseph Wombaugh thing. Yeah. And then we got some some Bob Hope stuff here. I love the Bob Hope stuff. Because they're all so stupid, <laughs> and and I enjoy them. I, I enjoy them. Ah. Alias, <coughs> alias Jesse James with Rhonda Fleming, who of course I I met when she was married to Ted Mann. 
owner of Man's Theaters at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she left us not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, my favorite blonde with Bob Hope and Madeline Carroll. Bob Hope and Dorothy Lamour in Caught in the Draft. And then Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard, uh, one-time wife of uh, Charles Chaplin, in Nothing But the Truth. Uh, and you know what? All of these are just silly. Bob Hope's just being a nut, and he's paired with women who are far too beautiful to, to really <laughs> share the screen with him. But they're all really, really fun. Uh, I would say my favorite blonde with Madeline Carroll, who's probably the least known of the actresses, is probably the best. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's super, super fun. And, uh, you know, but in any case, you're watching Bob Hope for the, for the freaking nose. That's what you're watching it yeah. for. Yeah. Um, got a bunch of Billy Wilder titles here. Billy. We've got, uh, well, a couple of Billy Wilder titles, at least. The Emperor Waltz and uh, The Fortune Cookie. Neither of these are considered Billy Wilder's best or even close to, but they're worth checking out. Yeah. And especially because our, our our friend and colleague Joe McBride did the commentaries for both of them. Joe, of course, wrote the book Billy Wilder Dancing on the Edge. So he is perfectly capable and qualified to do the uh, the commentaries on these things. Fortune Cookie is kind of, you know, with at the end of his career, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, it's, it, it could have been better, but Billy's getting a little long in the tooth. And uh, The Emperor Waltz with Bing Crosby and Joan Fontaine kind of, you know, going through the motions. This is from 1948. This is Billy before he's really hit it big. Two years later, he would, I mean, he was big, but two years later, he would get, you know, um, uh, Sunset Boulevard and then it was you know, game on. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, no, it's, it's, that's fun as well. Joan Fontaine, one of my all time favorites, Bing Crosby, always a, always a, always a blast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then we've got a bunch of Italian and French stuff, which, uh, I'll make quick mention of here as well. Um, Lino Ventura and Jacques Brel, A Pain in the Ass. I love that. No American film would ever, ever name itself that. Edward Molinaro directed this. <laughs> Edward Molinaro, who, of course, would uh, also do uh, La Cajo Fall. Um, and this is a, you know, this is a, Francis Weber wrote this. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting action comedy. It's, it's, you know, Weber is one of the funniest guys who's ever lived. So it's, it's worth checking out. Um, Jean Gabin, older and tough in Rafifi in Paris. Do you ever mm. see this? It's oh, not, yeah. It's not like it's not this the is, other. I, yeah, it's not the other. It's 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 you know it's good. It's solid. It's it's Jean Gabin just kind of owning his age and being uh, being real tough and hard boiled from 1966. Uh, Seven Days, Seven Nights, um, by Peter Brook with Jean Moreau and Jean Paul Belmondo. Peter Brook, wonderful, wonderful British stage. And screen director is great. He's working with uh, a couple of amazing uh, French actors here. A lot of people might not realize Peter Brook made a French language film. Yes, Belmondo, did. didn't we lose Belmondo? What is it, this year? Last just recently. Year? Just recently, right? Yeah. Belmondo. Just recently, right? Yeah. We, yeah. we, we honored Belmondo at, at Lafka. What? We did. Yeah. He, we gave him the Career Achievement Award, and I think it was, I, it turned into a little bit of a fiasco because he was, he was not happy with his hotel room when he got here. <laughs> you know, leave it, leave it, leave it to the French, right? And um, do you do you remember that evening? He was sitting there with like three gorgeous women, oh, like yeah. some, like seen from a Bond film. Yeah, it's like did you did you bring the Bond girls with you, or did you hire them out? What's 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 the story there? Yeah, I kept hoping to God they were his daughters, but you know <laughs> they weren't. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Yes, indeed. Got uh, a couple. Just, of- I'm just jealous. What the hell am I whining about? I know. Claude Chabrol movies here. Um, so many Claude Chabrol movies. That guy used to be just unbelievably prolific. Blue Panther and Blue Beard. They have nothing to do with each other other than the fact they have blue in the title. 
And they're both very, very good. Michelle Morgan and Daniel Darieux are wonderful, along with Hildegard Neff in um, in Bluebeard. Uh, but I think my favorite of these two is possibly Blue Panther, which I had not seen before and has a really, really interesting cast, including Stéphane Audran, who was at one point married to Claude Chabrol. And uh, then we have uh, L'Amour Braque by Andrei Zolavsky, uh, which is, uh, yik, you know, this is from 1985. It's not like super old and classic foreign language film. They, 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 they're kind of bragging about how much stuff they've got on this thing. There's a couple, <clears throat> two different audio commentaries, one by Cat Ellinger. The other one with the with Zolovsky and, and his writer, uh, you know, a bunch of behind the scenes things. Look, I love this because it's got Sophie Marceau in it, and I adore Sophie Marceau. But um, it's uh, you know, it's kind of a, a weird modern remake of Dostoevsky that doesn't totally work for me. Um, so you know, Sophie Marceau's great. Uh, <clears throat> the cast is good, but uh, it, it's not quite entirely successful in that regard. Uh, Alain Delon, didn't we just lose him too? Yeah. 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 Oh even, even more recently. Even more recently. Yeah. Just like a week or two ago or something. Alain Delon and Simone Signoret in The Widow Couderc, C-O-U-D-E-R-C. This is by a director named Pierre Granier de Fer, whom I've never heard of. It's a, you know, cop thing. Um, and then we've got uh, Georges Lautner's The Road to Selena. And another Lautner film called Icy Breasts, um, with also with Alain Delon. Um, so he might still be around the land. Lautner, I think, is still with us. Yeah. And he made, you know, he made some pretty decent crime films in the 1970s. Both of these are from the 1970s. They have a real 1970s feel to them. They're they're a little bit too. The colors a little bit too sticky. The sound is a little bit too tinny. But otherwise, it's fine. Uh, some good audio commentaries on here. Only if you like uh, French crime films from the seventies, and um, Alain might see. still. I think yeah, Delon. No, he's still with us. Alain Delon is. Yeah, yeah. We lost. We lost somebody not too long ago. Yeah, maybe no, maybe it was Belmondo. He's still hanging around. Nineteen thirty-five. Oh, man, they're all they're all they're all leaving us. Well, yeah, yeah. What's, um, what's great about all these French guys, though? Yeah, you know, Chabrol. You were talking. People forget. I interviewed Claude Chabrol in nineteen. I don't know, 19, I think he didn't die until like 2010, 2011. Something like that. I interviewed him in '95. I think. Something wow. Like that. Um, you know, here and down. Um, no kidding. Uh, so, so you know, these guys had long, long careers, not just the stuff that they were doing in the '50s and '60s, uh, that post new wave period. Man, I'll tell you, some of these guys is just they they just don't stop making movies. Yeah. It must be nice. Must yeah. be nice to have the money and the distribution there. Well, I'm looking at the uh, yeah, um, uh, Inspector Bellamy, 2009. Right, Jeez, right. That's I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, uh, and then a bunch of old Hollywood titles, and uh, and then we'll move on to uh, 4K or uh, something else here. we got a bunch of fun stuff. Yeah. But uh, Ida Lupino, Gary Cooper, and Harding in uh, Henry Hathaway's Peter Ibbotson. This is from 1935. has a David Del Valle audio commentary on it. i got to believe Ken Ellinger and David Del Valle do nothing but record commentaries for, for Kino. They're just always working. Yeah. Uh, in any case, this is a, uh, a, a, a George Dumarier novel adapted for the, the, for, for, to film with uh, Gary Cooper and, as Peter Ibbotson. The, um, the romantic lead in Ida Lupina was the... Uh, it's the the notorious uh, Agnes uh, solid adaptation of the book I have heard I'm not a I'm not a I've never read the book but so I've heard uh, Mitchell Leeson did No Time for Love with Claudette Colbert and Fred McMurray 
Uh, this is when Fred McMurray was being, uh, he's, 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 they, they, they advertise this as with him shirtless. The actual poster <laughs> art is Fred McMurray, yeah. like bearing his pecs. And I'm like, Fred McMurray. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was, was, were you really a sex symbol at one point? I guess he was. He was hard boiled there before it became the, the, the father. Was it my three sons? Or yeah. My three sons. Yeah. 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 We, they, we got to know them all eventually on television, didn't yeah, we? Yeah. Like Barbara Stanwyck for me was. <laughs> <laughs> the mom in the big valley. The mom in the big valley. And then I found out that, oh, she was once young and hot and a uh, femme fatale. Yeah, yeah. Knock right? off people, yeah. And then we also have Claudette Colbert and Fred McMurray in The Bride Comes Home with Robert Young. This is a little bit more of the Fred McMurray we're accustomed to and the Robert Young we're accustomed to. Uh, this is a great screwball comedy. If you've never seen it, you, it's really fun. 1935, right in the pocket of the period. Uh, awful lot of fun. It's really, really worth checking out. The Bride Comes Home. Good, solid, classic screwball comedy. Uh, Claudette Colbert with Fred McMurray and Ray Milland in The Gilded Lily. Uh, also very, very fun. This is the uh, very first time that Claudette, Claudette, Claudette Colbert and Fred McMurray actually appeared together in uh, in a movie. Oh, yeah. That's, a, like, that's like 35 or something like that. 35 as well. Sure is. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, directed by Wesley Ruggles uh, again, and it's just uh, it's a it's really quite a lot of fun. Uh, so you know they made six films together, Colbert yeah. and McMurray, and um, that's one of the really really fun ones. And then uh, another Mitchell Leeson directed film with Claudette Colbert and just Ray Land called Arise My Love, uh, which is also really sweet and really charming and uh, very clever. This is a little bit later on. This is 1940, so we're starting to turn a little bit during the war. This, by the way, has a screenplay by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the movies that helped segue Billy Wilder into that directing career. It's a, it's a hell of a screenplay. It's really sharp. Then we have Claudette Colbert and Herbert Marshall in Four Frightened People by Cecil B. DeMille, which is just as ridiculous and cheesy and hokey as you would ever have imagined. Honestly, there are times where I wonder why DeMille was the... the thing that he was uh <laughs> 1934 this whole thing it's a survival tale man yeah. yeah the whole thing it's like you know a bubonic plague breaks out on a ship and and these four people get on a lifeboat and they go off to survive and they wind up on this this island in somewhere in the south pacific and you know what between the boat and the ocean and the south pacific it's basically all just one soundstage <laughs> yeah it's like you're watching it and you're like, are you sailing from one side of the soundstage to the other where you put up a bunch of fake palm trees? Because I'm really not buying it. Oh, boy, boy. Claudette Colbert looks fantastic in that movie. I'm like, really? Stranded on a desert island, are you? That's <laughs> so she funny. You look fantastic. <laughs> and we just talked about Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, another Cecil B. DeMille movie, Union Pacific Got with it. Barbara Stanwyck, who is the standout in this thing. This is basically a Western uh, you know, it's, I mean, that's late thirties, Joel McRae, right? Yeah. 1939 anchor yourself to see to, to, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Don't worry so much about DeMille who really overplays everything in this. This also has an audio commentary that has a few interesting anecdotes, Gary Cooper and, uh, Paulette Goddard in the Cecil B. DeMille film, film unconquered, uh, which also has these weird supporting performances by Howard DeSilva and Boris Karloff of all people. Uh, this thing's from 1947. It is, uh, uh, it is better. Well, I'm not even going to say that. It's still a Cecil B. DeMille film. It's yeah. still got, you know, 
people cast against, you know, ethnic type and it's obvious and embarrassing and everything that's outside is shot on a soundstage and it's just absolutely silly. Eh, but Jesse Lasky Jr., I think, screenplay. On that. Yes, he did. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Jesse Lasky Jr. co-wrote the screenplay. I mean, it, this takes place uh, kind of colonial times, American Revolutionary War and, you know, early frontier. I don't know. It's, you know, it's supposed to take place in the frontier and it all takes place yeah. on a soundstage. I had a lot of great faces still. Alan Napier, the guy that played Alfred in the original TV Batman. Yes, series. that's right. He's walking He's around, in it. He's walking around that movie. And so very young in it. Yeah. And very young. Yeah, Ward Bond, few people, yeah. And our last Cecil B. DeMille movie has Carrie, uh, Gary Cooper and Gene Arthur. It's called The Plainsman. And, uh, you know, it's got most of the same Cecil B. DeMille flaws in it, but it's, it's, it could be worse. It's a, it's a Western. It's got Gary Cooper. I don't know. I guess that's enough for most people. Basically, it's the story of Wild Bill Hickok. Yeah. Uh, Gary Cooper plays Hickok. Not very convincingly. He's still Gary Cooper. Like, you know. Yeah. He's, 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 it's, it, it Stiff as a board. Stiff as a board. Stiff as a board. Ridiculously young in this movie. That's early 30s, mid 30s, something like that. Yep. And then another one from the mid 30s is uh, the, this is our very last one here. Marlena Dietrich and Gary Cooper. Great pairing in Frank Borzaghi's Desire. Oh, yeah. uh, Which is, you know, it's, the code is already effect, so there's not that much desire going on here, but (laughs) uh, it's still fun because it's an Ernst Lubitsch movie. Yeah. Uh, You know, Ernst Lubitsch uh, uh, wrote it, Frank Borzaghi directed it, but. You know, it's primarily a Lubitsch story. All the Lubitsch touches are in it, and um, it's it's it, that that makes it fun. So uh, you're 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 watching it for the Lubitsch touch, as it is always called. So uh, let's move on to something else, Tim. Well, shall well, we? I, I was looking at I was looking up at the 4K. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the the UHD business. I see Space Jam: A New Legacy. Yeah, I already spit that thing out. Uh, you and I, of course, uh, were here for that original Space Jam. <sighs> How did you we you know we we never talked about the how do you how did you feel about the original Space Jam? I'm curious. Well, I much prefer it to this. <laughs> uh, uh, look, a, a whole different universe of technology uh, came to us in the that's in true. And in, in, in yeah. that original Space Jam was Michael Jordan or whatever uh, plays more like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know. Um, yeah. and, and the way that they're doing that kind of stuff. This thing, this is really more about the technology than it is anything else. And I, I like LeBron and he can be, he can be, he can be fun, uh, when he's acting. Uh, but in this, there was just too much acting, uh, uh, going on. Uh, and, and so I, you know, wasn't, wasn't a big fan of this, of the 2020, but you know, the kids, the kids seem to enjoy it. I, you see, for me, the problem is the technology. Like, I think the premise of the original Space Jam was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was absolutely mm-hmm. absurd. It was like some, somebody, Somebody was dropping acid somewhere on the Warner lot and just said, hey, man, why don't we match like Looney Tunes are popular and <laughs> Michael Jordan is like really popular. Like, why can't we put Michael Jordan and Looney Tunes together? And for some godforsaken reason, nobody said, dude, that's go <laughs> no, home, you, no. go home. That's never going to. But they did it yeah. and it never made sense. But but I, I will say this. Uh, LeBron is a better actor than Jordan. That's true. Like he is, he has legitimately more screen presence. He's much more natural. Like Jordan just wants to play the game. You point a camera at him, he he gets very, very patrician. You know, he kind of turns, he, he starts doing that, that's talk like the, the Bob Dole thing, talking about himself in the third person. Yeah, you know, which is very strange. <laughs> the, only, and, the only, the only, the only that ever got, uh, you know, a quote unquote performance out of Jordan that was natural was Spike, 
in those uh those True. Those, those those Nike commercials from those commercials from 30 yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, he was very charming in those spots. But then again, mm-hmm. so was Spike. Very true. But LeBron is legitimately very natural on camera. Yeah. He's very funny, isn't he? He can be very funny. He can be, you know, he really, he can act uh, straight up. He, he you know, uh, train, 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 train wreck. Was it train wreck? No, train. Yeah, it was train wreck. Yeah. It was train wreck. He yeah, was terrific. He's just, he's just absolutely terrific in that movie. Yeah. He's great in that movie. He's wonderful. But, but it's all technology here. It's just like splash and sizzle. And, and I'll tell you, it owns the 4K. It really does. It, yeah. it totally owns the 4K. It, it, the TV just pops and everything is just large in life. But, um, you know, it, I don't know, man. It's, it's got some, you know, I got a few extras on it. They're only on Blu ray, some featurettes and, uh, uh, deleted scenes and you know but as as far as showing off the 4k man it's 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 really gorgeous it just the colors explode the blacks are amazing um misery you know, the one that which misery is misery it? this is the this is our stephen king misery man oh rob ryan uh, which was yeah. which was uh, an interesting moment for rob because it's not exactly a rob ryan kind of film he tried you know right. he didn't want to stick right in, you know he did that uh what was it mississippi burning or something like that was that the one you did yet? no oh, no that was he did the other one. Um, uh, what was it oh, the, the uh, one about Megar Evers? I think it was. Yes, yeah. that's that uh, is yeah. With Whoopi Goldberg and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you know, he would venture off uh, into into other genres. This was an interesting little walk for him. One of the better adaptations of King, if you ask me, Young Kathy Bates. Yes, and, uh, and I credit that to William Goldman yeah, who wrote that's the script. Yeah. That was William Goldman took you know when you when you got a great screenwriter adapting a great novel by a great novelist. Classic Hollywood movies are filled with stuff like that, um, and 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 it and it works, man. I'll tell you, uh, Kathy Bates is fabulous in this thing. And this was, I realized, you know, nineteen ninety. Yeah, this is maybe six or seven years after she appeared on the Love Boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right, yeah, all right, right on. Because uh, uh, they cheated her because she should have been cast in that Frankie and Johnny movie. Yeah, that's uh, right. Because she did the role she on Broadway on stage. on stage, but they cast Mich- Michelle Pfeiffer uh, yeah. instead. And frankly, I'm sorry that had a little bit to do with it. But and 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 while I appreciated that movie, I know it would have been a better movie with Kathy Bates. Yep, because Kathy Bates looked the part. Michelle Pfeiffer yes. was too goddamn beautiful. Yeah, you know, and right. I'm like, who the hell? Would, would, first of all, why are you a waitress? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Quit this job, uh, you know, and I'll buy you a condo. Get get the hell out of here. Well, but you know, uh, on the same by the same token, uh, Clint in his new movie uh, Cry Macho, yeah. it, Clint is ninety in that movie or ninety one, whatever he is now. Yeah. Uh, but then again, so is Shatner. Yay, William Shatner for oldest yeah. guy in space. Let's applaud the Shat. Yeah. Um, you know what's, but, what's wonderful about Shat, and I'm I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm let you get your thought back. Yeah. Um, his mind is as so clear sharp. as when he was playing Kirk. He is it's unreal. He was sharp. He's sharp. He's quick. He's witty. You know, and and you know, look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dumping on old people. I'm, I'm approaching that age far too quickly to do that. <laughs> but I got to tell you, if in 20 years, when 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 I'm 80, if I'm as sharp as he is now at 90, I will be the happiest human being on earth. It's unreal. It's so it's so inspiring to see him. It really is. It's just uh, it's a beautiful. I, I I I want him to play Kirk one more time. Just one more time, man. I just want one more Kirk turn. Yeah. Uh, and I would I would so go see that in a movie. But yeah, uh, what I was going to say is Clint at, at 90 in Cry Macho is playing a character, which in the book is apparently like 38. Ah, so, ah, you know, ah, it's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. Anyway, I knew that there misery, was something wrong with that damn movie. See, I, mean, I did not know you. what you just told me. But now that you just told Somebody me. Somebody else told me that. And now I know, now right? Okay. Now that you know, you know. Okay. 
So uh, Misery looks very good in 4K. This is a, a Kino Lorber 4K. They, they, I, I don't know where the the mastering of the film has necessarily taken taken place, but it, you know, it's not the best 4K, but it looks very good. It's very nice, better than most of the other uh, Kino Lorber stuff, and it comes with a ton of featurettes. All the stuff, all the EPK stuff, it's all here. It's a load of featurettes and and the two original commentaries, one by Rob Reiner and one by William Goldman. So it's a it's a really really nice set. It's 4K Ultra HD, uh, Dolby Vision for those uh, paying attention. And uh, my television is Dolby Vision enabled, and man, does it look gorgeous! Yeah. Speaking of which, my goodness, Inglorious Bastards oh, is yeah. one freaking just spectacular looking uh, 4K UHD. Um, it really is. This is another one of those reference standard things. It's got a Movies Anywhere code on it, so you can add it to your Movies Anywhere uh, library. You can watch this thing anywhere, upside down, inside out, on your phone, on your iPad. Um, I have I was never a huge fan of the movie originally, so I'm reevaluating it. And I have to say, it is a better film than I gave it credit for originally. It really is. Well, I, I don't know how big of not a fan you were of it originally. I had my criticisms of it originally. It's still one of those uh, Quentin Tarantino screenplays that's too long. Yep. And and it and and because of that it runs the gamut from absolutely brilliant to sometimes perfectly inane. Um uh and 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 uh and it, so it's one of those uh but broadly speaking it has moments in it that are so powerful and so impactful that you just have yeah. to let the rest go. I and I, that's I agree completely. I agree completely. I mean it's it's like he works so hard and he takes so many risks. Some of them don't pan out. He's swinging for the bleachers in every scene, and he's striking out a few times. Yeah, but man, he hits some home runs. Yeah, oh yeah, oh he yeah. Really does. I get, but you know, it's, I just, you know, the right editor, and there, and this yeah. would be a flawless film, Quentin. So, but whatever. So this the the DTS HD audio is really an unbelievable mix. It is a tremendous mix. You really got to just that's that's the one you got to. Work that work the speakers over with that thing. It's absolutely fantastic, and the HDR. If you're all set up for HDR with your system, it'll blow your mind. It this is another one of those reference standard discs. Put it on, it'll show off your system like nothing else out there. 4K of Inglorious Bastards, Quentin Tarantino, mm. and then lastly on the 4K front, we have Volume Two, the much-awaited Volume Two of the Columbia Classics 4K Ultra HD Collection. I gotta say, Tim, it's not as impressive as the first one, mm. which of course had you know League of Their Own and. Doctor Strange Love and Lawrence of Arabia and well, was, this, this was, one bounces around a bit. I mean, it's, not all yeah. these movies really go together. Anatomy of Murder and and, and Oliver. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little weird, right? Yeah, it's what, kind of a kind of a yeah. yeah. Well, how are we hooking that up there? And stripes. I mean, really, stripes in with Taxi Driver. Yeah, <laughs> really, I, I know. Think, okay, I, I I expected I expected at least several best picture winners in here uh you know the previous one had lawrence of arabia which won best picture it had gandhi which had won best picture you know it it had uh it, it had real you know credibility i mean in this one you're i mean you know most of these films were nominated for best picture taxi driver social network sense and sensibility oliver but only oliver won mm. And, uh, you know, Stripes is a little weird. Anatomy of a Murder is a little bit weird to throw in there. Yeah. They're all fabulous. Yeah, These are all great films. Movies, but I'm not sure that a single buyer, unless you're you and me, <laughs> you yeah. know, or something, I'm not sure that, that, that a given sort of ordinary patron would want Taxi Driver and Stripes. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I was looking at this. I'm like, okay, I can see someone who loves Oliver, loving sense and sensibility. Yes. Can't really see, cannot really see uh, the person watching Taxi Driver then wanting to turn around and watch Stripes. That's a little weird. <laughs> That's just, I don't know, man. I don't know. So, yeah, I don't really get how they're choosing them, but, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful set, and the extras are absolutely superb. Uh, the book that it comes with, you know, it comes in the same same packaging as the previous one with that really beautiful book that just has all the all the goodies in it and all the pictures and all that stuff. Um, tons of tons of great extras on here. I mean, Oliver especially. I, I was elated. I've watched and listened to everything on Oliver, including the commentary with Stephen, uh, Stephen Smith, which is fantastic. Jack Wilde screen test, absolutely terrific, very impressive, uh, and then a whole bunch of featurettes that are that are just absolutely wonderful. And Oliver is, you know, one of my all time favorite films, so I I just can't get enough of that. Taxi Driver, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be diving into tonight as it happens. Mm-hmm. Taxi Driver also has a gigantic pile of extras, uh, which I admit I have not completely delved into yet. It's got a 40 minute uh, Q and A with everybody from the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival, which I'm super looking forward to. Scorsese, De Niro, Jodie Foster, all of them. And then it's got the uh, Scorsese-Paul Schrader commentary, which was originally recorded by the Criterion Collection, which I, I am very, very thrilled with. So that's a, that's a first-rate commentary. And then other commentaries by Paul Schrader and Professor Robert Kolker and a whole bunch of other featurettes and thing on locations. I'm really looking forward to it. So... A lot of great stuff there. Uh, but again, you know, if you want those movies all together, you're going to, you're one of the very few, I suspect. Mm. We move on to the new stuff. Let's do new stuff. Yeah. Um, um, which, which, which Blythe spirit are they talking uh, about? <laughs> because you know, I, mean, I know there's that new thing from 2020. Uh, that's the one. That's the one. Okay. Cause I was, I, one. I was hoping it might be the Rex Harrison. Yeah. No, no, it's not the Rex Harrison, David Lean film. No. no. Uh, this is the one with Isla Fisher, Judy Dench, Leslie Mann, and Dan Stevens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is a weird movie, man. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I was hoping it was the other one. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, cause I love the Rex Harrison film. Oh yeah. By the way, by the way, do you know that, you know, the, the, there's some funny stories from the, uh, the Rex Harrison film. And this is going to tell you a lot that Tim and I are talking about the other blood spirit when we should be talking about this one. <laughs> But, but, but the, the David Lean was not known for his sense of humor. You know, he was raised a Quaker and he kind of did that movie as a favor to Noel Coward, who gave him his career Mm -hmm. and Rex Harrison and Lean did not get along. Now it's a little bit interesting that, that, that overlap because David Lean had edited Pygmalion, um, which was then remade with music, obviously as the, as my fair lady in which Rex Harrison won an Academy Award. But those two films, you know, their, their careers otherwise didn't really overlap except for Blythe Spirit. And there was <laughs> Noel Coward, one of the great wits of all time. There are scenes where, where, you know, Rex Harrison delivers the line. It's very funny and witty and so forth. And he looks over at camera and Lean is not laughing or even cracking a smile. He's just kind of rubbing his chin with this pained expression on his face. And then he would, then he would turn to the rest of the crew, turn to the cameraman, and he would say, I didn't think that was very funny. Did you? <laughs> and it so pissed Rex Harrison off. Rex Harrison was so angry that here's his director who just can't gauge, the, just can't judge the comedy. Uh-huh. He's asking the, the the cameraman if he thought it was funny. <laughs> it's terrible. like it was a, it was. But yet the movie is oh, perfectly delightful. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Yeah. Ronald Neen. Uh, what's what's wrong with this one, Tim? Why does this just not hum? I, you know, there you go. Uh, a very, very, very good question. Well, Dan Stevens is lovely. But he's no yes, Rex. Yes, he's very good. But he's no Rex Harris. 
There you uh, go. You know, there's a certain amount of charm there that just cannot be duplicated. And for that matter, uh, the rest of that wonderful cast from the 1945 film. I mean, all these, I mean, not just Constant Cummings, but Margaret Rutherford. I mean, how do you replace her? You know, uh, yeah. so there are all kinds of people there uh, that you just can't. And not to mention, you got Noel himself narrating the film. Yeah. Uh, and he's hitting all the beats exactly right because he wrote them. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, and so I, 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 I imagine that this film, the one that we're talking about, the Dan Stevens film, it was kind of done to begin with because you just didn't have all the right elements. That's a good point. Uh, we got a we got a, a great little movie, a, a little compilation of movies here. It's called "Who Will Start Another Fire." This is uh, from Kino Lorber. It's a uh, it's a collection of nine short films by emerging filmmakers from quote unquote underrepresented communities around the world. Hmm. And uh, I would I would just say focus on the fact that these are just nine really really interesting mm-hmm. short films. From from all different backgrounds around the world, really interesting short films like Flying by Pierre Tracy, uh, Pierre Tracy Shen, Family Tree by Nicole Magabo Kigundu, Troublemaker by Olive Nwosu, uh, Polygraph by Samira Saraya, The Lights Are On, No One's Home by Fai Ruiz, By Way of Canarsie by Leslie Steele and Emily, Park, uh, Emily Packer, uh, The Rose of Manila by Alex Westfall, Slip by mm. Nicole Otero and mm. Not Black Enough by Jermaine Manigault or Manajo. I don't know really how you pronounce it. But um, anyway, really terrific. All nine of these are really, really good and worth watching. Great and introduction by Charles Burnett. Charles Burnett, yes. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, what I like about this is like your own little short film festival. And as someone who has been involved in in an acclaimed short film i'll tell you it's not easy to make these things no forget about the how short they are and some of them are very short they're all really hard to make especially to get the performances that you get and i applaud all these filmmakers and i hope to see some really good things from them all yeah yeah see beautiful stuff uh let's see what else we got here in the new stuff tim uh the misfits what do you want to pull out oh the misfits which is fantastic yeah. Uh, 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 Pierce course. Brosnan. Yeah. Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. Uh, Pierce is kind of owning his age pretty well, isn't he? Yeah. So, because the other day we were talking about, uh, you know, all the Bond stuff. And, yeah. and Pierce is playing sort of like a reverse, he's a suave Devonier guy, uh, uh, who's a thief <laughs> and a scoundrel. And he's got yeah. this, and he's got this kid. Uh, it's a Rennie Harlan film, by the way. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Rennie Harlan has been making the same movie. <laughs> for 30 years. Doesn't make any difference yeah. in it. Cutthroat Island. Doesn't make any difference what the genre is. Uh, uh, Long Kiss Good Night. It's always the same movie. You know, Rennie Harlan, 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 Harlan lives in China now. Did you know that? I did not know that, but now I understand where the money came from uh-huh. uh, to make this big, That's this, it. this big, very, very expensive he, movie. He, he relocated to China and they give him all the money in the world to make these movies. Uh, yeah. Now all those Chinese actors make sense yeah. to me too. You, you get sent yeah. all over the world, all kinds of capers, a daughter and Nick Cannon, yep. this team of people. And they got to steal some money from this guy to, to cheat this a gangster and all yep. this kind of stuff. And, 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 and Pierce, uh, again, he's just, you know, he's just doing this guy, but he's just wearing his age and it's just great. And, you know, but it's a Rennie Harlan film. All over the place. Uh, you know, yep. you can almost put in any Rennie Harlan film and it's like you're watching any other Rennie Harlan film. But what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with it. Nothing at all. Got a movie here called Beats uh, by Brian Welsh. The Steven Soderbergh executive produced this so that people would actually see it. Otherwise, this thing would have gotten <laughs> lost. I'm serious. 
that's what got this movie noticed. Yeah. Um, this takes place in Scotland in 1994, and uh, it takes place in the, in the world of electronic dance music, EDM, as the kids call it. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's one of those good, gritty kind of um, UK, British, Irish, Scottish. There's a lot of these, right? That are that are all set in this kids trying to escape their, you know, unfortunate home lives and and social situations um, through something like dance music or dancing. They're kind of like UK variations on Saturday Night Fever, yeah. if you're if we're going to be honest. Yeah. And uh, this is all set against the backdrop of a, a notorious order from 1994 called the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, which banned, um, believe it or not, gatherings uh, that featured featured music that w- that had w- that was too beady. I mean, that's you know, it's like <laughs> really like it, like, and it was you know, it was about raves. It was yeah. targeting raves yeah. specifically, but like. Like, how do you even write that law? Too many beats. Like, how many beats? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, how many beats? You know, like I, I can imagine. I can imagine somebody like like Dre saying, "I'm sorry, you got to got to be more specific." Like, how many beats is too many beats? Because <laughs> right. I'll drop one fewer. I'll get I'll get right below that threshold <laughs> if you just give me the number. Oh, yeah. it's just nuts, just nuts, just nuts. Uh, Tim, did you see Free Guy? I, I did see Free Guy. Free Guy, uh, uh, Ryan, 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 you know, what's his name running around there? Uh, yeah, Ryan Reynolds. Oh, look, I'll show you, I'll show you something to show you. I'm not going to be, a, I'm not a complete and total asshole, but I, I, <laughs> I, I bought, I bought Mint Mobile because, you know, Ryan, oh. Ryan, you know, Ryan owns this company now. Yeah, that's right. And, and, uh, and he does the commercials and everything. Anyway, Free Guy is, 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 is a perfectly fine movie. It is funny. Uh, oh, I love it. Uh, it is just absolutely hysterically funny. Uh, and, and, and I, and I, I wasn't going to do it because, you know, I, I see Ryan and Ryan's got the gin, you know, he's got the gin aviation gin. That's his gin. And then he yep. buys, then he buys the telecom company and, and yep. he's got these movies. He, he's played, who did he play? You know, obviously he's Deadpool. I think he played, he played somebody else in one of those, uh, 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 DC films too. I can't, and all this kind of stuff. I'm just thinking to myself, you know what, dude, you got too much. <laughs> that's too much. Yeah. Uh, it's too much. It's too much. It's too much. And it's irritating. And then he makes this freaking movie and it's fucking funny. And, I, and I'm like, ah, all right. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, he's just going to be one of those guys. He's just going to be so, one of those so this guys. So this is out on 4K. Disney did not send us the 4K. We only have the Blu-ray, uh, which is unfortunate because I'd love to see how this thing looks in 4K. But uh, And there's a Movies Anywhere code. But regardless, it's really fun. It's it, The whole thing is kind of riffing on the – It's a, I guess it's you, we could call it a video game yeah. era version of oh. Sherlock Jr. or – uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, because yeah. there's the world in the game and then there's the world in the real life. And they kind of, you know, people are becoming sentient in the game. It's a little matrixy, but it's funny and it's yeah. clever and it's self-referential. And it's just, it's it's a really, really, it, you know, Taika Waititi, who is an Oscar winner as a screenwriter and a filmmaker, you know, has done Marvel films too. Um, he shows up as the bad guy in this thing. He's terrific. I mean, everything about this movie just works. And here's what I hate most about it. It's directed by Sean Levy. Yeah. This is what my 2021 has been like. This is what has been more painful than the pandemic to me. The two filmmakers that I have spent the better part of the last 20 years denigrating <laughs> and ridiculing. Right there with your brother. Are Zack Snyder and Sean Levy. <laughs> I have ripped the two of them to pieces. And with literally within six months... I have to eat crow on both of them. I, I will only say this about both of them. Cause I've been right there with you. Uh, 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 but to my mind, about Sean Levy, I will say this. He finally made a decent movie. Yeah. So that's what he gets from me. 
And he's been doing good work on uh, Stranger, Stranger Things. things. I have to, yeah, I have to yeah be really. And, and, and which is funny because you know that's where he should have always been. Uh, yeah. He should uh, that 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 medium at that scale really serves Sean Levy movies much better. Uh, Sean Levy uh, media much better yeah. than feature films. Uh, feature I agree. films, the jokes wear thin. Night at the museum. I don't care how many of them you make. That was funny for the first fifteen minutes of the first movie, uh, and then everything after that, you know. Uh, uh, there you go. But, uh, you know, take all that stuff and stack it up on television in a, in a rip roaring TV show. And it's great. And, and, uh, free guy. Uh, there you go. Uh, Got a couple here from Lionsgate, uh, lady of the manor. I, I, I wish I could say something nice about this movie, but I can't, I can't stand it. Um, it's, uh, it's not that fun. It's like a supernatural comedy and I don't think it's that supernatural. and I don't think it's that comedic. Um, so, Melanie Linsky, who I really like going all the way back to, to two and a half men, uh, is, is hired for this, like, uh, they do these tours, right. Of the, of these old places in the South. And she's hired to be the woman who died in the, you know, the post civil war period, who was who, the owner of the house, the lady of the house, mm. lady of the manor. And then the, the actual, the ghost of the actual lady uh, Judy Greer shows up, and so now it winds up being this shtick between the the ghost of the actual woman and the one who's hired to play her in the tours of the current manor. I like, like I don't understand why anybody thought this was funny. Mm. Uh, but anyway, uh, Justin Long and his brother uh, wrote and directed this, and I I don't want to say anything bad about him because I like Justin Long, yeah. but. You know, devote your filmmaking skills elsewhere, yeah. uh, please. The other one is Catch the Bullet with uh, Jay Scarrett, Peter Facinelli, Tom Scarrett. Um, uh, Jay Pickett, sorry, Jay Pickett, Peter Facinelli, John Scarrett, uh, Tom Scarrett. Going too fast here. Yeah. Um, this is a, one of those, this is a basically a straight up grindstone movie, except it's set in the West. So it's grindstone doing its Lionsgate action thing, except it's no long, it's now, you know, a Western, uh, which is a little bit of a turn. But, um, you know, it's, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a chasing, chasing an outlaw thing. You know, they made a million of these in the fifties and sixties. And I I just don't quite know what this adds to, to any of that. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they don't play as well contemporarily now as they did, you know, when we were kids or even, or even as late as the ones that Clint made in the, in in the late nineties, Unforgiven, High Plains Drifter. Right. Right. In in the, in the eighties and nineties, they still played. Uh, and, uh, they were still banging them out, uh, in the early nineties, Geronimo, uh, and, and, and a couple others. But by the time you get to the late nineties, the, the, the actual Western set in the old West becomes something kind of difficult to do. Um, yeah. um, you, you know, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Did you see the green Knight by chance? I did not see the green Knight. What did you think? So I had not seen it. I had meant to see it and finally caught up with it. So uh, I love David Lowry. I think you and I both really like David Lowry. Yeah. You know, he's he's been coming on for a while. He's kind of, he's got a touch of Terrence Malick to his whole sensibility. And um, this is basically telling the story of the Green Knight, which is one of those, you know, the story of King Arthur. Yeah occupies a number of different literary sources. There's there's Lamorte d'Arthur by uh, Thomas Mallory. There's the epic poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. You know, they're all, there's a whole bunch of different ones. 
And this is this is based primarily on that story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And here, Sir Gawain is played by Dev Patel. It's very stylish. It's surprisingly faithful to the source material. But, and I hate saying this, Tim, I'm sorry. I, I love Dev Patel, but I can't, I can't get, it's the same problem that I had with the David Copperfield that he was in. Yeah. Dev, Dev Patel is, is, is South Asian. Yeah. And I can't, it's like, I, it just, you know, I, it's, unless you're going to rewrite it and reconceptualize it in some way that doesn't draw attention to that fact. It has to, it ha- you have to take it and set it in a mystical world. Uh, it's I, distracting. I, I, I will allow for anything to happen in a in a in a in a sort of mystical, magical world. And I know it's yeah. night and all this kind of stuff. I'll allow for anything there. Uh, but if but if it's meant to be in the world as it was, relatively speaking, yeah. then 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 you have to explain to me why that guy is South Asian. Um, yeah. um, you, you know, um, uh, you, you throw in one, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, but yeah, that's, that's, that's just the way I am. It's just the it's, way I am. I mean, it, 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 it's, it takes me out of it. Yeah. It's distracting. And I remember you, you kind of helped crystallize that for me after I saw, um, the, uh, the, the remake of the Magnificent Seven. Oh Yeah. And I came out and you were asking me and, and the first thing you said, and I was like, you know, there's I, the, the problem, like I'm, I was trying to pinpoint my problem with it. And you said, was it forced diversity? <laughs> yeah. And I, th- and I said, yeah, that's it. It <laughs> felt like forced diversity. Yeah, You're going to have to, it, you got to explain these things or in some way, you can't, it's as bad as Will Smith. One of the first times I bitched about it yeah. and, and, and it was Will Smith playing James West. Yeah. In the wild, wild west, set when it was set, you know, uh, in, 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 uh, and I'm like, what, what? A secret, the, the brothers, a secret servant agent in 1895? Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? So, you know, and, and I appreciated it deeply, but it's, this is not, this is not a movie that I can even pay any attention to because it's just decided that the world isn't the world. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that I can't, I know, no, it's distracting. Can't do it. Can't do it. Uh, Naked Singularity uh, was an I- interesting little thing from uh, Screen Media. You know, it's, I, I like how John Boyega is mixing it up. You know, he's he's not taking just the big paydays and the obvious stuff. He's really mixing it up. He's keeping us all off balance. And um, in this one, he plays a, uh, a New York public defender who is kind of not certain that he's, he is where he needs to be. And uh, it he winds up, he and Olivia Cook become part of something that I can't r- really explain, but it, it, it winds up basically taking a left turn into a really, really unusual place. And, and that's as much as I think I should probably say about the story here. Um, see it for John Boyega, see it for Olivia Cook. They're both terrific in it. They're both doing the best work of their careers. And this movie is going to be forgotten by almost everybody. Mm. But check it out. Yeah. Check it out. John Boyega and Olivia Cook in Naked Singularity. Really an interesting little indie. Uh, should probably start to wrap it up here and migrate into our, our interview. But uh, are there any any others here that uh, you want to focus in, on? In the docs, uh, which projectionist is that? The projectionist. Oh, let me let me go over to that. Hang on here. 
this is the Abel Ferrara projection. Okay, the 2019 film. Okay, interesting. Yeah, this is this is a documentary by Abel Ferrara. Uh, this is from Kino Lorber on Blu-ray. This was a big deal at Tribeca. It got some great comments out of Tribeca. Did you see this by chance? Oh, I absolutely did. That's why I was hoping it was that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I really appreciated that film. I think, I, I, I think yeah, really appreciated that film. Yeah, it's this is about uh, Nick Nick Nicolau. Uh, who basically a guy who started, uh, he's kind of a famous theater operator who started with, uh, with, um, like, like porn films, right? Yeah. Didn't he start with adult movies yeah. and all that? And, and yeah. And this is, uh, in, in Queens in the early seventies, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, his whole, uh, basically a story of an independent theater operator over the course of, of, of several decades. Quite a, quite a, quite a story. I know, I know a little bit about the guy, but yeah, Abel Ferrara, Doing some interesting work at this point in his well, career, for is, sure. He was exhibiting films that would have never been exhibited, not just porn, uh, but experimental films and short films and films from students coming out of NYU, uh, uh, the, the, the film school over there anyway. And, and, and a lot of the movies that he played in the middle of the night uh, that were you know, kind of, kind of, yeah, I guess you call sleazy. Sleazy is the word that they use, but they weren't sleazy. What they were is reflective of the reality of, particularly the reality of New York City during that period. I mean, this is well before the gentrification of New York, the first yeah. gentrification of New York under Giuliani and, uh, and, and David Dinkins and all of that. And when, you know, I used to hang around New York back then. Uh, and it was just, you know, it was just that, that, that whole vibe. And, and it was really just kind of an amazing, kind of amazing scene. Anyway. I want to make uh, mention of two really quickly before we uh, segue over to the uh, the interview. One is uh, Bruce Willis in Survive the Game, along with Chad Michael Murray on Blu-ray and uh, digital copy set. This is another grindstone movie for Lionsgate. Uh, you know, I mean, it's if you've seen one Bruce Willis grindstone movie, you've kind of seen them all. Uh, he plays a cop, and there's drug bust gone wrong, and, you know, they've got to make it right, and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, it's very confidently made and um, it's nothing new whatsoever. But again, you know, Bruce Willis has a following. Want to make sure that his fans don't miss out. You know, yes, sir. I'm hoping Bruce will pull off a Nick Cage. Bruce is actually yeah. older than Nick Cage, but I'm, I'm hoping yeah. he'll pull off a Nick Cage where, you know, he goes into the abyss, uh, but every now and again pulls one out. You know, yep. Willie's Wonderland, you know, that rain, that wacky rainbow movie. Uh, uh, kick ass or something like yeah. that. And there you yeah. are. And you're like, okay, okay. That's my guy. Still got my fingers crossed for Bruce. Well, we also have Angelina Jolie who acts very infrequently these days is going to show up in the immortals directed by Chloe Zhao very soon. But uh, meanwhile, she made this interesting little movie called those who wish me dead. It says the movies anywhere code on it. And she plays a firefighter in it, uh, a smoke jumper, someone who's a smoke jumper. You know, you, you, you hop out in forest fires and she's traumatized about, you know, these people she was not able to save and um, winds up in kind of a road trip with this 12 year old boy. And of course, it's a chance to redeem herself. And, you know, there are these lightning storms and it becomes very much one of those road trips, you know, grown up and a kid and a road trip and. It feels a tiny bit like the Mandalorian. I've got to admit, mm. there's a little bit of that going on here. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I didn't buy her as a five 
fighting. That's the thing, one right? Second, not one fucking second. I buy that. <laughs> you know, Sheridan movie. I just not a second that I buy yeah. that. You know, so you know that she's got to be beautiful and all that kind of stuff. But there's beautiful and there's beautiful and and Angelina but, is just beautiful. And no, you're not a smoke jumper. Stop. Yeah. Well, there it is. In any case, that's it for this week. Uh, and we'll be back in about 10, 11 days, something like that, to uh, do our little uh, Halloween coverage. A lot of spooky movies. And we'll we'll share our own picks for scary movies that you could watch on streaming at that time, too. And um, meanwhile, go to gods at Digigod, uh, email us at gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com or just go to cinegods.com. The podcast is there as well as at... Uh, digigods.com and uh you know we're getting new stuff up there on uh, on an increasingly regular basis we, we, so we, we, uh, we are gonna try to get in another god cast we're gonna do with some yes some horror movie producers uh that we're very good friends with uh stereoscopic uh productions the fellas over yep. there george lee uh, uh and marcus uh, over there making horror films now what george likes to call elevated horror which i think so we're gonna we're, yep. gonna we're gonna do a little sit down with them on the god cast and talk about a film they just made which happens to uh, feature our uh, other good friend sherman augustus uh from and, our first god from, cast from our first god cast so they just, yep. just knocked the movie off in savannah wicked little horror movie and we're gonna just talk about the whole horror movie thing yep. you know uh, uh it, as it comes back on us uh i think we we reviewed i reviewed anyway uh the Halloween middle film at the top of this podcast. So there's a horror movie thing going on, and horror has been this genre that just won't go away. Uh, it's always very there. profitable, uh, and you know, um, this, uh, 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 romantic comedies come and go, uh, space operas come and go, but horror is always there. It is, it is indeed. All right, with that, and then without further ado, here is uh, uh, our interview with Grady Hendrix and Chris Pajali. The authors of These Fists Break Bricks, with a, which is a terrific book, wonderful forward by uh, Riza of Wu-Tang Clan, who, of course, is one of the all-time great fans and boosters of this genre. And this is an absolutely terrific book. So here, interview with Grady Hendrix and Chris Pajali, authors of These Fists Break Bricks. And I am thrilled to be interviewing Grady Hendrix and Chris Pajali, who have written a phenomenal and spectacular new book, These Fists Break Bricks, How Kung Fu Movies Swept America and Changed the World. And uh, this is, of course, as anyone who listens to the podcast uh, knows, is a subject near and dear to my heart. I, I wrote a Jackie Chan book many years ago, and I have contributed to uh, Stephen Hammond's two excellent books on uh, on the history of Hong Kong cinema. So I love this stuff. I live for this stuff. Let me ask you guys first. Um, I mean, what I find fascinating here is that you, you, you stop basically at the eighties. You, you only sort of look at a certain period here and you're, you're using that as the lens through which to uh, look at the broader society and how the films have impacted the society, which no previous book, including anything that I've ever contributed to has really done. And it's incredible to me because you you went deep. You went back into even the pre-Shaw Brothers period. Could you talk just about how where, where did this idea sort of hatch and how did you go about your research? Well, you know, I had done a book called Paperbacks from Hell, which is the history of the paperback horror boom of the 70s and 80s. And Chris had seen that and really liked the approach, the sort of narrative approach. And he has a huge collection of posters and ad materials and all that stuff. 
And so he talked to me about, you know, would I be interested in working with him on a book that, you know, looked at this sort of kung fu movies coming from America and tried to find this story in there. And that's what we spent the most time sort of talking before we decided to do this. Is there a story here, a, a beginning, middle and end? And um, and we found one. But then in terms of the research, I didn't know what we were biting off because I was like, well, before we start around the early 70s, we got to know what was before that. And and um, and we started there. And Chris is a beast in terms of research. And so the stuff he kept coming up with just kept taking us down these rabbit holes that some of them never led to anything. But a lot of them just led us to really wild places. Um, I don't know, Chris, if you want to talk a little about the research. Well, I had, a, in addition to the movie posters and the ad sheets and, and newspaper ads, uh, I had a lot of uh, martial arts magazines, martial arts movie magazines, like a complete run of Fighting Stars, a uh, complete run of martial arts movies, a lot of uh, Black Belt and Inside Karate, in which they, they interviewed uh, martial artists who made movies or uh, people like Sterling Siliphant and Robert Klaus who wrote or directed uh, some of them. So, so I had a lot of the research already and I also had gathered a lot of research like reviews from box office and Hollywood Reporter and Variety and, and articles about the, uh, the distribution and uh, the importation and the, bo the box office uh, and uh, the uh, the grosses and the rentals for the for these films and uh so so i had a lot of it already but we started doing research into martial arts themselves and when they came to the u.s how they came to the u.s uh who the major players were and uh and that's how we turned up like jack sergal who you know we knew about because of Blood on the Sun, but we didn't know his story. So, uh, so Grady got in touch with some people who knew Sir Gower were, uh, you know, relatives of of uh, people who had been to Manzanar, and and so yeah, a, a lot of that research about the history of the martial arts came during the writing of the book or shortly before. Uh, but I, I brought a lot of the movie research with me uh, along with the posters <laughs> yeah well it's it's the posters and the artwork i think that that just it, it magnetized me i mean i was amazed some of those those ads for you know jujitsu instructions and all that that stuff you know it's those are wonderful archival finds and it just kind of brings everything alive um was there anything i mean tell me what surprised you most in the process writing always you always find the things that you you're looking for but then you find things that you're not looking for what were the big surprises for you in this process no, no, Chris, you want to take that one first? Uh, well, I wanted to talk with some of the writers and editors of the magazines uh, that I just mentioned, like martial arts movies. And so I started looking around for the editor of martial arts movies, who was uh, Sandra Siegel. And I found out that she's now uh, Judge Sandra Ikuda, a ninth district uh, circuit judge. Uh, Oh, that's great. And, yeah, and and she was. I did interviewed her, and and her husband was the top photographer. Ed Ikuda, the top photographer in the seventies and eighties for all of these magazines. Uh, he he photographed everybody from Bruce Lee uh, to to everyone. I mean, uh, 
the uh, cover of Time Act that's in the book is one of Ed's photos. Uh, he was at the Bruce Lee auditions when, when they did uh, the John Peters uh, Barbara Streisand movie in the, mm-hmm. in the late 70s. Uh, he was there. He photographed all of that. Uh, he, yeah, he, just, uh, just an incredible talent. So I interviewed them both for the book. And so that, that, was, that was a real kick, uh, finding out that, that she was a, a judge now. Yeah. Great. I mean, How about you? What was, uh, what was the fun surprise? Well, for me, you know, there was so much stuff in here that was surprising. So many threads we followed back to really wild sources. Um, and one of the things I, you know, so like um, something Chris was just saying, and this blew my mind, is after Bruce Lee died, Barbara Streitzand helped put together this giant Bruce Lee biopic project where Chuck Norris and um, Bruce Lee's brother and, and Robert Klaus and um, John Peters, all these people like participated looking for a Bruce Lee lookalike to make in a major studio film. And it's, you know, and so you think of Bruce exploitation movies as these cheap knockoffs, not this giant studio production with, you know, people like Chuck Norris and Barbara Strikes and lending their name, but there were also some people that we sort of tracked down or or learned about that I wish I wish we'd been able to do more uh, with. And you know, one of them who really uh, really sort of um, captured me is uh, Joan DeAnda and um, uh, Marcia Silen. Chris, is that how she pronounces her name? Um, yeah, I think so. Marcia Sillen. Sillen, yeah. Um, yep. Because they had, they were these two women and they were um, a, a couple and, um, or we think they were a couple. They seemed to have been a couple. And they ran this company called Cineworld Pictures and they started out making um, these 16 millimeter softcore movies and then sort of got out of that when the FBI started cracking down because they were, the FBI kept coming in their office wearing wires, trying to get them to make hardcore movies in the early seventies so they could bust them. And they were like, they always recognize them because the agents offered too much money. So then they like these two women got out of that, took over a porno theater in LA and started screening all these classic movies with like Rosalind Russell and Mae Westham made it a showcase for female filmmakers. Then they started a distribution company specializing in movies by and about women. And then they started Cineworld, which was doing like, they didn't have a lot of money. So they were doing like really bottom of the barrel movies like the dragon lives again and and the warrior within which was a documentary and like some black exploitation movies and then they got into children's films like i mean it's just you know and they don't figure in the book a whole lot but it's just there's so many people with these wild stories um that i wish we'd had more space for well talking about wild stories so so one of my very very close friends recently departed was martin swyback who was one of the head writers on kung fu on television and, uh, and I used to talk to Martin a lot about that stuff. And one story that never, ever came up is the one that you guys relate in the book, which is that Kung Fu was canceled when David Carradine went on a, on a naked peyote binge around Laurel Canyon. I mean, that, I, I had never heard that. Where, where did that story come from? That's incredible. Well, you know, we found the original articles about it. And I think David Carradine talks about his memoir, Chris, doesn't he? 
Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I had never heard it. That was new to me. That and, was amazing. Well, and you know, one of the things that was interesting doing this book is looking at the time, like they never gave that as the reason they canceled Kung Fu, but you look at the timeline of when these things were happening and when it was canceled and what episodes they had in the can. And you look at the language in the, the, the press release about it ending its run and you, and, and Carradine saying, you know, this, this wasn't a good look. And you just put those pieces together and you're like, yeah. Oh, huh. So that's what happened. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, and I, you know, that you talk about so many films too, that I have never seen. And that, that was really humbling to me. Cause I, you know, I like to, I come from that generation, that Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan generation that then turned around and discovered all the Shaw brothers movies. And we like to think that we sort of have this great encyclopedic knowledge that we've now seen the whole canon all the way from, you know, Shaw brothers, all the way through the Hong Kong new wave. And you guys it, pick up all, I mean, there's so many really cool, obscure movies in here that you talk about. Um, what's talk, where, where do you think the greatest influence, um, on American culture from the martial arts world happened? Where was it? Was it the Hong Kong movies? Was it the homegrown stuff? Was it, uh, exploitation films? What's the, how do, how do you sort of break that down as to sort of the, the explosion of, of popularity, um, for martial arts from martial arts movies in American culture? How does that break down for you guys? I don't know, Chris, what do you think? Well, do you mean because, uh, I mean, Kung Fu premiered over a year before the big craze happened? Yeah, because it it just, you know, for for me, it was Bruce Lee. And then Bruce Lee, you know, I got into Kung Fu on television and then from there, Jackie Chan. And so that was sort of my trajectory. But um, in in some, you know, for a lot of people, it was Chuck Norris movies. Right. I mean, for so and and other people still, they they were already on board with the Shaw Brothers movies. You know, I know older people older than I am who were all, you know, they were the only white guys going to all the Chinatown theaters. So, you know, where does where does the American fixation with these films where does that kind of begin is it bruce lee or does it or was bruce lee just kind of did he light the fuse that others carried how does how do you sort of see the trajectory i mean i'll jump in i mean y'all jump in and just say i mean i think it definitely was bruce lee i mean his movie wasn't the one that broke big right in 73 it was five fingers of death that really captured people and interesting Bruce Lee sort of came after and actually um, Duel of the Iron Fist and then uh, around the same time the Bruce Lee movies, the dubbed ones were being released, um, Angela Mal films like uh, uh, Deep Thrust were, were being were big in theaters um, and it wasn't really until August of that year when the Kung Fu sort of wave was almost cresting from these other movies and everyone jumping in the pool that Enter the Dragon came out. And by then, Bruce Lee had been dead for several weeks. And that really became huge. And that sort of, if these other movies could have been a flash in the pan, that really planted the flag and made it permanent. Um, But, you know, you had a couple of interesting things happen, which was, one thing was that a lot of the movies, I mean, this was the first time non-white actors um, were really just, you know, taking the, the, the war by storm. I mean, black exploitation movies had done that. And, and, and certainly there were people like Sidney Poitier and things like that and Harry Belafonte. But, but these were 
these seem to come out of nowhere. They weren't big studio movies. I mean, they were Warner Brothers movies, but they weren't getting the push. They weren't getting the celebrities. And they seemed to sort of come bottom up instead of top down. And so there was there was a lot of playing catch up with that. But what you look at them doing to American movies is really interesting. I mean, one of the things is Bruce Lee did something that overshadowed what all these other movies did, all the Shaw Brothers movies and everything, which really emphasized skill and two really skilled opponents trading a lot of blows and, and doing really these really almost ballets. And Bruce Lee was about, I punch you once and you go down. Uh, it was about power. And it was about speed. And that you really see in a way Chuck Norris is the next version of that, which is he hits you once and you go down. You know, Chuck Norris wasn't about long choreographed acrobatic exchanges. He was about hitting people hard and they fell over. Um, and the other thing I think that made its way into American movies, which had already been there, but I think martial arts movies really um, made it, put it front and center, is this idea of the underdog, that all these people in these movies are... They're nobodies. They're poor. They're blue collar. And they're fighting against these larger, more corrupt forces. And you see that really, really getting picked up a lot in American action movies. Um, and then the third thing is... Um, training. And that's something not so much from the Bruce Lee movies, but more from the Shaw Brothers movies. It would play in the 70s and especially the early 80s in Times Square. These intricate like training sequences and you see the way the 80s kind of fetishized training sequences i mean certainly rocky has a lot of training sequences in it but by the time you get to rocky 4 where like you know two-thirds of the movie is the training sequence you know you feel like maybe that's coming a little bit from martial arts movies Mm -hmm. and, and chris how much of the artwork is from your private collection i mean it sounds like you've got a pretty good archive to begin with uh, a lot of it. Uh, there, there were some pieces that I knew I didn't have. And so, so we got them from the distributor, uh, Seraphim Carol Exis, who had released the movies. Uh, he had you know, commissioned Neil Adams to do all of his posters. And so he had the copyright on some of them or on all of them. And so the, uh, the few that I didn't have that we wanted for the book, we just asked Seraphim and, you know, made a deal with him. So, uh, he sent us the two or three, I think there were maybe, yes. maybe four of them, like Ninja Warriors was one of them and death of Bruce Lee was another one, but yeah, wow. most of the others, um, yeah, I I had them and uh, I mean there were a lot that we we thought afterwards wow we should have had this photographed because mm. uh, this would be the perfect place for that poster and yeah. it's too late we we didn't get it photographed so that, that happened a few times it was so in in a couple of cases we just had to look around for a good quality scan uh, but yeah I, I mean in some cases we just took scans from the internet of posters that I had, but we just didn't get them photographed. Well, that's, that's great. Yeah. And can I just jump in for a second? You know, Chris just mentioned Sarah from Carol Alexis, and that was one of the really fun things about doing this book is it opens up into this whole world of these independent distributors like Sarah from Carol Alexis, uh, Larry Joaquin, Terry Levine. Um, and these folks uh, were really, um, 
they were scrappy and down and dirty in a way that's been lost these days. Um, you know, the, the way they would sell movies, the way they would go on gut instinct. Um, after he saw uh, Five Fingers of Death, Seraphim just looked at the credits, saw it came from Hong Kong and said, I want one of these movies. Flew to Hong Kong, opened up the phone book and looked for a movie studio, said, I want to buy your movie. And then went and watched trailers in their screening room for hours until he saw this movie, The Duel, that he then brought back in his suitcase as Duel of the Iron Fist to be the to be have the second martial arts movie in America on the big screen. I mean, just the way these guys really like would just they come from a world that's lost where they all had offices within a few blocks of each other, where they're all looking at each other's grosses, where they're all hustling. And they are some of the most amazing characters in motion picture history. Um, the fact that, um, Larry, uh, Larry let his son Marco, who was 11 years old at the time, basically give him the idea to do the Green Hornet movie made out of old Bruce Lee episode, Bruce Lee footage from the Green Hornet TV show, and then basically let Marco edit this movie together. Uh, an 11 year old boy that went on to become this huge international hit. Um, and the fact that when Larry was like shooting a movie like The Black Samurai with Jim Kelly and would run out of ideas and script pages, he'd call his like adolescent son on the phone and say, What should happen next? And Mark would be like, A jetpack. And Larry would be like, Okay, everyone, we got to do a jetpack. I mean, this is not the kind of filmmaking that happens anymore, but it's so, it's so great. It's so energizing. This spirit of like, all right, can we make that happen? Can we make it happen by five o'clock today? Can we make it happen for $32? We can. Let's do it. <laughs> I Grady, I'm so glad you went there because that was actually where I was going to go next was the distributors because uh, this brought back a lot of, and everything you're just saying there too, brought back a lot of when, you know, about 20 years ago, uh, my uh, Cindy Gutt's colleague, Ray Green, and I made a documentary, which Ray wrote and directed called Schlock, The Secret History of American Movies. And we interviewed all of these great exploiteers who were still with us then and are no longer. Sam Arkoff and, uh, you know, Corman, obviously, and, and Doris Wishman. And, and the one thing that came out of that was a similar kind of a sensibility. You know, Arkoff said to us, he said, we had titles and we had posters. And that's what we sold the movies on. And then we wrote the scripts. And it seems to me that a lot of these guys, I mean, you have a, you have a distributor directory in here that, that has companies in it I've never heard of, like, you know, Cinema Shares and World Northall and, uh, you know, let's, uh, another one up here uh, that I have absolutely, know, Ivory League Pictures, never heard of Ivory League Pictures. I mean, what kind of crazy research did you have to do to figure out who all these companies were? Do any of them still exist? Uh, no. Um well, World Northall still exists. It's just a, uh, it's a, a, that was a family run business and they just, they just shut it down. I think they're in real estate now. I think it was a family, the Stanton family, uh, ran World Northall. Uh, but a lot of the people from World Northall came from Cinema Shares. Uh, the, a key player was Mel Marin who was the first person who he, he was involved with the Godzilla movies in the sixties and seventies. He uh, had a deal to distribute a lot of the Godzilla movies. And then he uh, got involved with martial arts movies uh, first with cinema shares. And then uh, he uh, went to world Northall and made the big sale for the television syndication with the Shaw brothers movies. Uh, so he was involved with a lot of different companies over the years. And, and so I, I talked to him 
a few times for the book and for other projects uh, that I'd worked on. But Ivory League was a very short-lived company, which I think Mel was involved with anyway. Uh, but his his assistant was a guy named Ivory Harris who ran that company. And I think they only released uh, a couple of movies. And it was mostly, it was Ivory. He was the print uh, the print coordinator for for Mel's different companies. I, I, he ended up uh, when he, when he passed away, he was working for Castle Hill with Mel. Interesting. Uh, yeah, but he was the guy who shipped out the prints, and he, and he did that job for a number of different companies. Jerry Gross or uh, uh, Jerry Gross's first company, Cinemation, and so he he knew a lot of the exhibitors and the sub distributors around the around the country. So he just ran this company on the side while he was working with Mel at, uh, at, I think at that point they were at Castle Hill or Omni pictures. I'm not sure they, they jumped around. And and, and it's interesting. People tend to think of this as a very male field, but then I was reading in your book uh, under Unifilm, the story of Mm -hmm. Neva Frieden, Mm -hmm. um, who, you know, was this amazing, I mean, this is a woman working in this field. And you say here that, uh, that Unifilm released 200 movies theatrically in nine years. That's amazing for an indie. I mean, that's, that's, that's an amazing clip. Talk about Neva Frieden for a second, if you could. Uh, yeah, Neva's great. She uh, she was a writer for Playboy magazine. Uh, she's very knowledgeable in jazz, so she was uh, a, their jazz critic and, and expert for a while in the seventies. Uh, she worked for Bryanston, releasing uh, in the mid seventies, and then wrote some screenplays. Like she wrote the Toolbox Murders and. Uh, a uh, couple of uh, sweater girls. So she wrote some exploitation movies and she started working for a company called Condor Films. And they were a sub distributor on the West Coast. And she uh, was booking their martial arts movies. And she got into a, a disagreement with a, a new booker that they had hired. Uh, who said, Oh, you know, the theaters are asking for more Bruce Lee movies. They want, and she said, well, Bruce Lee only made, you know, four or five movies. That's it. I mean, and he said, well, no, they, they want movies with the real Bruce Lee. And she's like, but we don't have them. If Columbia, at that point, I think Columbia Pictures had most of them that weren't, you know, the other, the other four that weren't Enter the Dragon. So she said, well, it's, you know, there, there are only so many Bruce Lee movies around. You have to go with one of the imitations. So uh, they got into an argument about that and she was let go. And, a couple nights later, she got a phone call from these these Hong Kong distributors who were upset that she had been fired, and they sent her five thousand dollars and told her to set up a company uh, to distribute their movies. They had an office in Guam, so they could ship the movies out from there using the U.S. Postal Service. And she said, "Well, you know, you already have a company in Jacksonville to distribute your movies. We were the sub distributors for them." on the West coast. And they said, yeah, but we have so many movies we could use a second company. <laughs> so, so they had her set up this company and yeah, for the next nine years, she ran it and, and distributed their films. And also not only in theaters, but on television and home video. Like there, there was a, a television division for Unifilm. Amazing. 
amazing. And you know, one of my other favorite things in the book is how you resurrect a lot of these, a lot of these figures that I had even forgotten about, like Ron Van Cleef and um, and Charles Benet. These these sort of you know these homegrown martial artists who who came out of karate in full contact or you know maybe were covered in some other way and had students and and were sort of for a moment they were they they had they had a, a moment in the sun didn't they yes mm-hmm. yeah a- i mean you know you look at these guys like you know it's funny ron ron was really important in the 70s you know not later but he, there was a moment when ron van cleef was a really really big deal and and you know one of the most famous black martial artists in movies uh charles benet really looked like he was gonna go places um you, you know when it's funny you even look at jim kelly towards the end of the 70s where everyone thought jim kelly was gonna be the next bruce lee and and it didn't happen um and one of my favorites who um you didn't mention but carl scott who was a young african-american kid who i think you know a lot of these other guys did karate which is great nothing against karate but carl scott did kung fu and so on screen it's much more it's a much more supple martial art it's much more about forms and stances and um and and it's much more about flowing rather than than power and he's amazing on screen when you see him in something like soul brothers of kung fu and you know he was just a kid i think he was what chris in 10th grade when he made soul brothers of kung fu yeah and his mom let him go to hong kong and make it as long as he was back in time to start the school year Um, (laughs) and he went on to make a few more movies and i think just kind of got into other things and and moved on but you know carl scott's amazing he's got a lot of charisma he's got great action chops um and a lot of these guys you know they have been forgotten and so that was a real privilege for us is to sort of be able to shine a light on their name again um and one other thing that was kind of nice to do is is there are a lot of people in the martial arts community especially the black martial arts community like um steve muhammad or victor moore um and you know who their stories are known in the martial arts community but they're not really known in the film community and and these are some of the guys who really made martial arts big in america and so it was really nice to be able to incorporate their stories even though they're only tangentially related to film into this bigger picture so here's here let's let's start to wrap up with this question which is especially relevant for our audience uh a a lot of these movies most of these movies do not live on DVD or on Blu-ray right now. They're not on streaming. They're they're hard to find. And a lot of this stuff is starting to kind of break. You know, we're getting Jackie Chan movies and Black Exploitation movies showing up on the Criterion channel and, <laughs> and companies like Arrow and Kino are starting to include some of them in, in their Blu-ray releases. What what are the what are the do you know any, anything about whether these movies are going to finally see the light of day and people might have have access to them? Um, some of them are coming at like, I, I, you know, the Shaw brothers ones, arrow and 88 films are doing box sets in the next six months or so next year, uh, of those. Also, there's a, a box set of Joseph Kuo films that are, that are coming out. And, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Worth has been restoring some of the movies like he did, um, dynamo and leg fighters and there were some other ones i'm i'm blanking out on the name of his company but uh if you if you uh google michael worth and 
Blu-ray, you'll you'll come up with uh, some of the films that he's been restoring, and he's also been working on a Bruce Bloitation documentary for a while. So I think he has a, a couple of major projects that'll be uh, seeing the light of day in the next year. And also, so, Chris, so we're gonna start to get them good. I was also gonna say, and do not sleep on New York Ninja, um, John <laughs> Liu, who was the super kicker. Um, he never finished this movie for reasons that are unclear, and who. Is it, is it vinegar syndrome or, or severin uh vinegar syndrome vinegar syndrome yep. just found it completed it put it all together and it looks fabulous and if awesome. you want a slice of 80s new york with martial arts in it new york ninja is where you want to go oh that's great well we love vinegar syndrome they do they do great work as well well listen guys thank you so much this has been a wonderful conversation uh we have been talking to uh, grady hendrix and chris bajali who are the incredible authors of these fists break bricks how kung fu movies swept america and changed the world which has a terrific forward by the rizza as well from wu-tang clan um who of course is one of the champions of, of this genre and these movies and uh, that's the, I, I'm, I'm so thrilled that you got him involved as well guys thank you so much and uh, all the best going forward thank you thanks man take care 